In this episode, I'm joined by Bruce Francis, world-renowned Taoist master and author of books such as Opening the Energy Gates of Your Body and Taoist Sexual Meditation. Bruce recalls his turbulent childhood, living with a schizophrenic mother, witnessing murders in New York City, and early training in martial arts and meditation. Bruce recounts a lifetime of adventurous travel, powerful encounters with spiritual and energetic masters in Japan, China, and India. Bruce describes his induction into a secret Taoist priesthood and the tasks they had him perform, his discipleship under Taoist immortal Liu Hung Che, and his training under Dzogchen masters such as Du Zhom Rinpoche, Nam Kai Norbu, and Lama Wangdor. Bruce also discusses the keys to Taoist meditation, the mechanics of mind-to-mind spiritual transmission, and how to heal mental, emotional, psychic, and karmic traumas. So without further ado, Bruce Francis. Bruce Francis, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you today. You have had a remarkable life, to to say it mildly, and I'm looking forward to delving into uh, that life here today with you. Um, In your book, Opening the Energy Gates of Your Body, Stuart Kenter has written a foreword there, which gives a a sketch of some of the key points of your life. And uh, he, he begins by saying, Born at the end of the 1940s in New York City, Francis was a fat, clumsy kid who at the age of 12 witnessed a fellow student get badly injured in a fight at school. This event had a powerful effect on him, and an ad in a subway that promised fear no man led him to his first judo class. Shortly thereafter, he also began to practice karate, jiu-jitsu, aikido, and Zen Buddhism. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, this early stage of your life is, is particularly interesting. Could you say something about your early life in New York and your family context in which you grew up? I understand it had its privileges and its challenges. You've said elsewhere, uh, to quote you, it's a good thing it was illegal to kill your parents when I was a kid because I might have done it. Yeah, that's quite true. Can um, you say something about your early life? My, my mother was uh, a schizophrenic with multiple personalities. And one of them was really nice and anyone would love her. And the other two, frankly speaking, bored on the homicidal. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing when you grow up in a house, you don't know if your mother's going to pull a knife on you, you got to take it away from her. Okay. I mean, this was like normal for me. Uh, And, you know, watching her and my grandfather go at it and whatnot. And I had to get in the middle between the two of them because there were times when my mother just did shit that, I mean, if I hadn't been there to stop my grandfather, he probably would have killed her. This would have snapped her neck. Okay. Uh, and we had immense patience with her for all the good it did. I mean, because you'll wear anybody down sooner or later. But uh, my, at the age of six, the decision got made basically that I had to be taken away from my mother because this wasn't going to be good. And as I said, you know, I had a bit of a temper. So, you know, it was a good idea to do it. So anyway, I, I, I got sent to one of the, really good boarding schools in America. Something like your Harrow's from what I can understand. We have people there, you know, their parents have more money than God. I mean, you don't, you know, Sunday, go out, go out for Sunday dinner, a Rolls Royce picks you up. You know, we had one of my roommates, his family would send up the airplane from Florida to take him back home for a weekend. You know, this is like, it's like serious. It's like, you know, billionaires row. And, but I just had, I was physically, utterly, and completely uncoordinated. 
I mean, we, we had to take tests twice a year and uh, we had to do a mental one and a physical one. They wanted me for the mental one because I could raise the school's points up. So they're hoping like the alumni are going to give more money. So fair enough. The only reason they kept me in a school, to tell you the truth. But the other one was that physical test. Now to a kid, they, to a young boy, they don't give a shit about their brain's work. <laughs> it's all about the body and, you know, and, you know, so we had to take these, these coordination tests twice a year. And, uh, I, you know, one time I'm like almost to tears because I scored so low on it. And, and, and the guy just said, look, kid, just be grateful. We don't have a lower score. <laughs> so I, I had no coordination. I really mean that. And so, uh, the only thing I could do was I could swim but not with any, just because I could attack the water with such ferocity, even though I did everything wrong, I still could actually swim reasonably well, okay? But, uh, but it was an interesting school in that the largest class I attended before I was 12 had six or eight people in it. So, you know, we had libraries and I, I just went for it. I just, I just, academics was easy for me. It never posed any problem, uh, you know, any test I could take, my IQ was, you know, somewhere north of ridiculous. And, but, so, and we had, you know, like, as I said, very, very, you know, just, you could have your own teacher if you wanted, basically, more or less, because a lot of the kids there, they didn't, they didn't want to be there. They didn't want to study. They wouldn't, I mean, frankly speaking, you know, a lot of the children were super rich. Their parents sent them off to a boarding school to get the rid of them. And the kids know it. It isn't like it's a big secret. So anyway, um, I'm reading all these things, you know, I mean, like, you know, rise and fall, the Roman empire when I'm seven. And it's like, I just pick up a book and I, I, I swallowed books, but I never swallowed books because I appreciated the writing. As a matter of fact, I didn't give a damn. I was just a data collector. I would soak in the data. I ran a lot and I would move forward and move forward and move forward. So I went through because of all these things, you know, I ended up going through a lot of the major ideas of philosophy and economics and all this kind of stuff before I'm 12 years old. And then around that time, um, anyway, I left the school because me and my friends tried to blow it up. One of the kids who was part of us, there were three of us and his family was like giant construction somethings. And he went to one of the guys who worked for us when they thought, well, how do you spike the boiler so you blow the school up? We didn't want to be there. <laughs> okay. And we weren't, we weren't, we weren't, uh, 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 I mean, I just helped because I didn't have the, the whatever, but he did. We spiked the boiler. The one time in the six years we had all been there that any member of the staff who was like the, somebody, the janitor caretaker came in was the day we were doing that. Thank God, because I don't know what would have happened if we had succeeded blowing the place up. You know, that, that could have been could have really nasty repercussions. But that was it. Now, during this period of time when I was a kid, there were two other things that were happening to me that kind of presaged the rest of my life. Or let's just say, showed that if you wanted to make a case that there's karma, you could make a pretty good case out of what happened to me when I was a kid. One thing was that uh, I ended up by myself, nobody telling me, I started coming up with the Advaita Vedanta, Ramana Maharshi's basic method of meditation. Who am I? If I'm not this, what am I? And I got into some pretty subtle mind states as a kid. I would do this a couple hours a day. And the other thing is I would go into the woods because we, we were surrounded by like a lot of woods. It was like a, a giant private estate and got a nice big 
stick and the branches that would go off, I just go, I just cut them in half. I'd cut them in half. It's like I was reliving a, a samurai sword thing. And I would I just do this. Since I had no coordination, I was thrown off of every team. Or even if I wasn't thrown off, if I simply said, I'll go into the woods. Fine, go ahead. You know, really, we, we, we'd like to actually win some championship or another. And I was not helping my progress. <laughs> okay, so I did that. And this was up to about the age of 12. Okay, uh, so my youth, my, 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 whatever you want to call it, grammar, you know, grammar school era, that was mostly involved with meditating because it was, it was unusual. And I've never met another person who actually came up with the actual classic method of meditation. And Ramana Mahashi was, was kind of a big deal in India. And it just came out of me. There wasn't any kind of, you know, there was no impetus to it. There was no reading about it. There just was that, well, this makes sense. Like, and I think every little kid wants to know, who am I? What the hell am I doing here? And they're always asking, who am I? I got this, this big giant world is going, what the hell am I? What the hell am I doing in the middle of it? And so, okay, so, you know, I did that. And then when I was 12 uh, in the seventh grade, I used to trade comic books. I mean, I, I, I was really like, I was pretty good at, and I did a lot of it. I mean, you know, I had like trunks full of comic books. You know, I had like first Superman's. I mean, the works. I had the whole thing. You know, Marvel comics came out. I would buy two hundred of them, stick them plasticized, and put them away because I knew these things were going to be worth something one day. And I like reading comic books, so you know, it, it all kind of worked out. Anyway, up in Washington Heights, I'm walking up. I'm walking, uh, you know, buying some comic books, and I'm walking back to the subway. And I see this guy across the street now for your audience. Don't get too squeamish. I look across the street and the guy rips an aerial off a car and whips it, whips a black guy to death. Nobody calls, you know, this was the era of like, you know, nobody wanted to get involved. So I'm standing there and I'm going, you know, hell. And all I knew is that by, you know, the blood's coming out and I, I can tell, I want to get out of there because I want to get there before the cops come or next day they're going to say I'm involved somehow. We didn't, we didn't trust cops in New York City. They were kind of thought of as the enemy. I mean, the cops were better than the mafia, but not by much. Um, so anyway, so I got some weeks, months later, who remembers? I went to a very good junior high school. I, I was on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which at that time was the richest neighborhood in the world. Okay. Now, my folks didn't have that kind of money. They had a nice little rent-controlled little place, you know, so, but it was enough. And, uh, and, and, and I, I see this little kid, these two kids going at it, right? One, they had a thing called open enrollment where people from Harlem could come down if they take the bus and come, come, come to school. It was, it was a good junior high school. It was one of the best in the city. And uh, this one kid who, he was just trying to humiliate this Puerto Rican. I mean, really, you know, like, I'm, I'm so smart. You're such a stupid little animal. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to make you squirm, make you pee in your pants or something. And the kids go, you don't want to do that. You're making me feel bad. Well, finally, the guy does it. And the teacher comes over and whatever, and he's trying to break. It's not working. And he gives him one last boy, takes out his knife, and he slits his guts right open. And his guts are falling out. And they're falling out of his stomach. It was kind of a warm time of the year. So he didn't have, like, all the coats and everything, which might have saved his ass, but didn't save his ass. Anyway, and I just kind of went, you know, like, 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 what do you do with this? And I didn't know quite what to do with it. 
but then I saw it on the ad in the New York City subway, judo, fear no man. So I said, okay. So I talked my grandfather into taking me down. He had been a wrestling champion in Greece. So, you know, I always got a kick out of it because he always, oh, so you want to do this judo, huh? You want to wrestle with pajamas. <laughs> That's what he called it, which I thought was hilarious, actually. Anyway, so I go over and I, I do this. Now, I'm not going to go into everything that happened because I said it must have been like a duck to water because the, 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 my first, the first teacher I had, there was a guy called Dito who started doing judo and in five years won second place in the old japan championships the guy was a block okay he was a block and so we learn how to fall and he would say oh you can fall now and i, and I would just go yeah i was going to give him the set this guy literally took and pounded me into the ground must have thrown me i would say who knows hundred thousand times and I could all I could remember is going home that night and walking up the stairs to my flat. And what normally took me about three minutes took me like two hours. I mean, that that that's how much I mean. My, me tenderizer, I got tenderized. Anyway, shortly going through this, then other things, other place I saw some people doing karate in the storefront, and uh, I did that. And then it just kind of kept going. And then you know I did jujitsu, and then I did aikido. And uh, I even did sword work. I even had a black belt in what they call live blade EI. And people always ask me, why do you do this? And I only had one answer to get better. I really didn't have a second answer. I didn't, I didn't have, uh, I didn't have any, I didn't have a big thing about being a champion. And I was a champion a bunch of times. I was, I was pretty good. Uh, and I was bouncing in bars when I was 15, 16. And so I was used to taking people out. That wasn't, you know, wasn't a mystery to me. But it was always that I wanted to understand what it was. It's really, it was really that simple. Where could this thing go? What was it? So, you know, a bit like, I guess, like a research scientist, they found some little microbe flying around. They're trying to figure out what, what is this thing? And so it went like that. And um, then I start getting somewhat near the end of high school. And, uh, you know, the whole, what college are you going to go to? Well, fact of the matter is that from the time I was 15, 16, I was really busting my parents' chops just to give me a passport so I go to Japan. I didn't care about going to college. I did care about staying out of Vietnam, which was the reason why that's the way it worked out because, you know, I thought Vietnam was a load of crap. I originally thought it was really wonderful. But then I had this, this, this group of people in the first really big peace march in New York. It was organized by this guy who had been part of the whole stuff in France with the Envin Fu, you know, the French getting out of Vietnam. And he organized a group of people because what we found out is that what the cops were doing were letting criminals, giving them a free pass, saying that when this demonstration comes, you start fights in the crowd. And then the police will come over with their batons and beat the crap out of them, which I thought was like, you know, really ridiculous but frankly speaking it was also just a chance to have some practice you know just practice you know knocking people out doing this and that so you know a bunch of things that come right in there person would just drop on the floor and they wouldn't even know what hit them and that was fine i mean i was a pretty strong kid so i effectively grew to my full size when i was 14 okay so it wasn't like you know i was like a little kid i always did adult stuff i never did the kid stuff so anyway And I saw one of these cops. They have had these batons that are really long. 
And I remember there's a pregnant woman, he whacks her right in the belly where her baby is. And that's when I lost it. I just got angry. That was the last time, one of the only times in my life I've truly gotten angry. And there's something inside of me, if I truly get angry, that let's just say it has a force of its own. Part of my family lineage is we're from Sparta. And Spartans are known for this. I mean, this is like they've been known for this for thousands of years. And so, you know, we would knock these people down. And then at the end of that night, uh, I had taken a lot of LSD during high school. I remember I even used to sell this stuff because I thought it was all part of, you know, liberating the world. And I was all part of the whole 60 things. I, I really did. I mean, I thought the system was corrupt up to its eyeballs and wanted to do something about it. And whether or not the things I did were smart or stupid, I'll leave the posterity to understand. But, uh, but there was a drug at that time called STP. Now, I had had maybe 30, 40 LSD trips. I'd won two major karate championships where I got slipped acid in the middle of the competition. And I would give anything to have the super eight of that, of that match. I really would. I mean, I had no idea. I really don't know what happened. I would see two people sometimes. I had really no idea what the hell was going on. But, uh, but this stuff, what STP was known for, in which I had the experience, it was the only time I have ever had what they call a hell trip. So I got to see the deepest, darkest demons in myself and in the city and, you know, walking by and you're seeing the shadows and it's like all of a sudden you start just realizing how grim life can get. Now, I never approached it from the perspective like a Buddhist in suffering. Because I always figured, look, I'm sorry, you know, if there's bright days, there's cloudy days. If there's days when you're happy, there's days when you're suffering and that's life. Um, but uh, that's what happened. That did something. Earlier when I was in high school, I did my first Zen session. I did Zen during high school too, because the whole thing, I didn't do it for spiritual reasons. I mean, I, I have read since the things, and I, I actually became a Chan master at one point. Okay. But to me, it was just that uh, I did it because I was in martial arts. And the one thing that why they recommend is to have absolutely no hesitation when you want to hit you want just no your mind is you just go straight without anything blocking it but in that session i'm in there for like i don't know two weeks week and a half who remembers you know really it's, it's a long time ago it's like 50 60 years ago and uh my mind was just focused on whatever, and I go in, and the next thing I know, I had the experience of not being in my body and dying. And I had the experience of watching my body shut off piece by piece until finally you're dead. And then at the end of that, I realized, well, it's not that bad. You know, everyone's always, oh, they're afraid of dying. I mean, look, I've had guns been put in my face. I've had gangs come after me with weapons. I damn well know what it is to be physically afraid to die. I mean, because I was in situations where that was absolutely on the table. But no, I realized it was just, and so what? And so if you come out of it, it's like, it's just an experience. And that was very valuable to me because it, it gave me kind of a willingness to engage with things that most people never would do because they would be afraid of it. They'd be afraid of what the consequences were physically or their identity or their emotions. Or, where I just got that, hey, so if you die, so what? Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying I wanted to die. I'm very much a fan of living. 
but I also got, there was no reason to be afraid of dying. I mean, you know, the worst it could be, I'd kind of been through it and it's not that bad. You know, it's the best way I can put it. So anyway, um, so I get all these scholarships to go all these places, but I want to go to Japan. And uh, I talked to my grandfather who we were in the church and stuff. We were big shots in Greece. Let's just leave it at that. And he says, no, I won't, I won't give you a penny. You should go and you should do this and you should get rich. Like I said, like I came back years ago. Are you still doing this karate stuff? Why don't you just do real estate and be smart about it? You know, very, very, shall we say, straight materialist point of view. And uh, so I then just went and I, uh, my stepfather, who you want to have a three wing circus when you're growing up, try a schizophrenic, marries a schizophrenic. Okay, that's a three ring circus. I got to tell you, you cannot believe the insanity that goes on. And I really dislike my, my, my stepfather. I mean, my mother had, when she would go berserk, she had bad qualities. But when she was fine, hey, you couldn't meet a nicer person in the world. You really couldn't. It's depending on which of the multiple personalities was dominant. But my stepfather, there never was a good personality. It was just like disgusting, you know? I mean, that's about the only way I can put it. And, um, but anyway, but he was in the commodities game. He had a seat in Chicago Mercantile Association. And every time he would kind of have a nervous breakdown, I would go in there and I would take the firm over. And I was really good at trading. I mean, I, I, we did stuff like that when I was in boarding school. Like they gave you a mythical 10,000 bucks. I ran into 100,000 bucks by June. I had a talent for it. Don't ask me how. Uh, but so I made, you know, I don't know. I had about, you know, whatever it was. 20 grand, I mean, three, seven, eight grand. I worked, I worked in a restaurant because of a kid in my school called Max's Kansas City, which in the seventies was like the hip spot in New York. You know, Warhol would come in and that whole crowd. I went to a few Warhol's parties, which was in one sense, it was a pity because the biggest thing as me as a teenager, I wanted to get laid, but you see, I'd walk by. I mean, I'd just be kicking the, the, the parking meters. And so I, th this was scaring girls off. Okay. And I actually couldn't even tell when a girl was coming on to me because a friend of mine noticed that who we became friends and stayed friends for many years. Daddy and they, these girls would be doing it. And I didn't even get they were doing it. But at the same time, I go, yeah, hey, you want to get laid? I mean, it, it was hilarious. But anyway, so I went to Warhol's parties, and I must admit, I thought Andy was kind of a weird fucker. It's about, that, that was as far as I got with it. I could never quite figure out why people were so enamored with him. But, you know, the one thing about New York City is, man, there's 8 million stories in a naked city, and you never know which one you're going to run into. Anyway, so I then had enough money to pay for my whole college. So I wasn't dependent upon my parents. I wasn't like in England where they used to give you grants to go to school. No, I just fucking paid for it. Okay. And I went to Japan and I'm, I'm training like a son of a bitch. Uh, you know, I'm training so many hours a day. And I mean, I flunked out my first term. And I mean, because like, I would come into the class and basically I was be rolling. I could barely read the piece of paper. But then this letter from my draft board just kind of said, well, if you know, if you don't really don't do better in your second term, you're getting drafted. Well, that's not me too. And so I, I just went and I got, you know, got the A's or whatever, whatever crap I had enough, enough to satisfy them. And then at the end of the first year, I mean, I was training a lot. I mean, I, I, 
I deliberately moved into a place. There was a, an Aikido apartment that was only, oh, a block from where the main, where Shiba's main school was. And so I was, you know, first I'm training there in the old days before they built the new building when it was just like, you know, the back of his house. And so I trained with him for about two years and a year and a half, two years, whatever it was. And, you know, I'd get up at this ridiculous hour in the morning and go out there. But then somewhere um, I kept hearing these things and a guy I knew in New York who was kind of like my, uh, he got me my balancing jobs. He was kind of like, like an unofficial official in the New York bouncers unofficial union. And he always said, yeah, you want to do this for practice. You know, he, he would sometimes take me down by the docks where we just trying, you know, let some 250 pound burly sailors go at you. And I gotta tell you, those are hairy son of a bitches. They really were, I mean, seriously. And he just would stay in the background. And only one time did he ever have to come in to save my ass or I probably would have gotten killed. Anyway, I was into it because, you know, it was the, the thing of the samurai way of life and you have to be utterly fearless and you have to engage everything and all this. So I bought it, I bought into it. And, but then he had said the best guy he had ever met in terms of fighting was an old, what we called old fat man Wong, who was Wang Shujing, who was my, my, ended up becoming my first teacher in the internal martial arts. Now, toward the end of high school, I actually practiced with Ching Man Ching for a couple of weeks. Because friends of mine, especially Luke Kleinsmith, uh, guys knew from judo and whatnot, they took their butt and, and I did some stuff. And he, he was, um, but he wasn't teaching people how to fight. And as a teenager, and being a bouncer and being this and that and having a scrap with all the blacks in my high school up in Harlem, uh, you know, if it didn't have a practical tinge to it, I didn't care about it. You know, they have two things in martial arts, like judo and jujitsu. Do means spiritual, means dao, and jujitsu just means a technique of breaking someone's bones. And I just wanted jujitsu. I didn't want, I didn't, I didn't want it though. I didn't care about it. It didn't matter to me. But so I met him and I met someone who, who had a, uh, uh, he had a student who was in Yoyogi, no, no, Rapongi, And I talked to him and he said, oh, you want to go see Wang? You bring him this like super expensive ginseng and whatnot, you know. Wang, I think would have liked the cash, frankly speaking, but you know, that's what he said. And I, what the hell did I know? I did find a lot of things about Asia. I mean, it just was all, you know, people have a lot of mythology about what they think Japanese and Chinese are, so much mythology. But then when you're confronted with what things are for real, some, some of it turns out to be so, and some of it turns out to be exaggerated. And some of it turns out to be, have nothing to do with anything. There's something else going on. So, okay, so I went through this. I went to Taiwan and I, and, and I, and I studied with Wong. And I've written about this in my books. I mean, it was pretty freaky. I mean, this guy's like, you know, five foot eight, you know, at a certain point, he's just kind of going go for me. And I mean, I'm kicking him and punching him everywhere. Now, I had just come from the year before having been part of an, uh, an old Japan championship karate team. So, you know, I wasn't like, I wasn't a punk. Okay, for look what it did. I mean, I hurt my foot on him, kicking him in the balls. Didn't do any good. Do a solid sidekick right into the side of his neck and my foot would hurt. Things like this impressed you, especially the fact he was almost 70. So I said, you know, all these stories I heard about, well, if you did this when you got to be an old man, you were like, really something else again. Wong was living proof. I didn't find any of the people in Japan to be that kind of living proof. They just weren't close. Some of them in terms of martial abilities were close, but never quite that far. So anyway, 
so I start studying with, 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 with him and he says, I'll come to the park in the morning. And there's this old couple and the day before I'm in the park and these teenagers are beating the shit out of me. I mean, really, I mean, really, it's like, you know, and they weren't kidding around because uh, like teenagers are, I mean, you know, if you tell them, okay, contact, you can hit, they'll do it. You don't have to, they don't need a lot of encouragement. And, but then next thing I know, I'm, I'm, there's this old guy and he's around 70 and he's short and I'm fighting with him and he's giving me a hard time, a really hard time. Now, I didn't go full blast to like knock him out or something because yeah, you do that to an old person in Asia and you'd be surprised how riled people get because they have a real respect for the elderly. Unlike America, where frankly speaking, hey, it's an old bastard, kill him, what's the difference? He's taking up too much space. But no, in Asia, it's like you know, Confucianism, a lot of respect. But anyway, and then the, the next day it's this and that. And so his wife taps me, she, you want to play? Now, I'm, I'm really kind of stuck. I mean, first of all, the idea of hitting a woman didn't sit, didn't go down well with me, but forget it about hitting grandma. I mean, this is like, and she actually dealt with me pretty well. Okay. Now, I must admit, I probably could have tanked her if I had wanted to, but she was, she was fighting as well as, you know, first, second, third degree black belt would in Japan. So this was like really impressive. So she shows me the day after that a picture. And shows her husband bent over like with this kind of like arthritis rheumatism where he looks like, you know, he's going to like, and that's going to be over. And he said, no, he stayed with one for a couple of years and he just got completely fine and completely healthy. And then he, then, then, then he started feeling his Cheerios too much. And he started going, ah, I'm healthy. I've got to do shit. You know, so he didn't do anything. And he, he, started, he started crumbling back down again. And then he went back and he practiced and he, like, he reinflated. And I was just... You know, and I was watching this go on, and, and then I, I said, "This is some. This is a horse you can ride for life." You know, and at that stage of the game, uh, all this enlightenment stuff didn't mean that much to me. I mean, I was just happy if I could keep my temper in control. From you know, shall we say, my mother left me with a small rumbling volcano inside. So okay, so fine. This goes on and I take a trip and I come back every, on my vacations from school. I save up enough money. So I was good in academics so I could like load my courses on more than the standard. Rather than trying to stretch it, I was trying to shorten it. So that whatever the space in the middle, like I go to Taiwan or whatever. And then, you know, I heard about, well, there was all this stuff in India and I heard about Kundalini, but I had another thing. I just finished learning the Tai Chi form from one of Wong's students. And I wanted to do Tai Chi on Mount Everest. Don't ask me why. Why does anybody want anything? This just kind of like popped into me for some reason. I have no, okay, we're going. And uh, so I went, I did that. And I went around India a bit, but I started seeing a lot of stuff that was really, really freaky. And it sh that shifted me for life. You want to talk about a life altering experience? Okay, I come from America. And for that matter, in Japan, okay, I mean, people weren't exactly poor in Japan. They were poorer than America at that time. Now they're not, but at that time they were. Uh, but still, you know, it was a reasonably affluent place. People were, you know, the only thing on the downside of the Japanese, when they felt they lost too much face, they just loved committing suicide. I mean, you'd see it like every time it got to be when they did the university exams. And right around that time, the trains were always late because people always jumping in front of the train. I mean, seriously, that was one way of getting your face back. I kind of thought that was, 
not, what do you call it, a permanent solution with a temporary problem. But the fact that that stuff was going on, and in Japan, where people, where if they lose their face, they will just slice their stomachs open and, and consider it to be a rather normal thing to do. It's different in America, right? In America, you don't slit your own stomach open, you stick, slit the other person's stomach open. So, okay, so this is going on. And, but I flew in, and first I was in Thailand, and you know, I went over and went over to Laos and I'm not going to go into it, but the White Rose Cafe has been written about by a lot of people. The wildest place you've ever going to see. And I had some stuff there, and this this big guy was like, you know, you know, blonde Viking mercenary look, you know, muscles on top of muscles. You long-haired hippie faggot. So we went at it, you know, and I kind of took him down, which he didn't know quite what to do. Was the next morning when we were going to just go up the river, he brings this big fucking giant box like this, and he puts it in a little boat we had. And he says, look, look, if you get into trouble, just open it up and figure it out. Well, we did. We, we ended up being on the opposite side where the Royal Lao Force, the Pathet Lao Forces were on opposite sides of the river. We're, we're in a boat in the middle. They were shooting at us and trying to kill us and all that kind of stuff. Fortunately, the currents went. They took us over to this thing. And we're, we're with some, we, we met up with some special forces. People weren't supposed to be there, you know, because that was legally they weren't supposed to be there, but they were. And, uh, you know, but the, and the Laotians are the sweetest people you could ever meet in the world. You know, you still remember those days where you could literally buy a bag of pot this big, $2. And that pot was better than anything I ever had in America. So it was like, you know, it was a little bit of Alice in Wonderland type of thing. But anyway, then go and I take an airplane and we're flying over Burma. And we land in Burma. And one of the things is that, you know, uh, these two things in, together really kind of, you know, made some sense to me. One was that we, we meet this little Pakistani rickshaw driver. So he's driving us around Burma, you know, at night through all these places. It was really quite something. I mean, and, you know, he said, oh, oh you want to, you, oh, you want to see the pictures of, you know, the Americans landing on the moon? And it turned, I couldn't figure out what it was. And we were so, well, it turns out these giant billboards, they had a picture of the man landing on the moon. And then a little bit later, there was, there's a place in Burma, which I don't know what it's like now, I really don't. But the British called it the Emerald of Burma. There's a big Buddhist stupa in the middle of Burma. And if you look out in it, the, the green that's out there is, is such a powerful image of just pure, vibrant life. It's, it's something I've never forgotten. I mean, I thought that should have been called one of the seven, you know, wonders of the world or something, but it was really quite amazing. So then we get in this airplane and we got, we now go to Calcutta and it's, uh, it, it's kind of, it's kind of a wild thing. Uh, and the airplane lands and we, I get out and uh, we're in a taxi to take me to the Salvation Army or something, wherever it was, whatever name I had. And you, know, you see a guy standing right next to it. And he's got like holes in his face. Now on the way, on the way down, going to going to Okinawa to go to, to go to, to go to Hong Kong or to go to India, we saw you know I passed through Hiroshima, and um, you still saw people in Hiroshima who had you know the atom, the holes from the atomic bomb in their faces, and I, I said they dropped an atomic bomb on you know on, on Calcutta. I thought I would have heard about this, but I remember being frozen, 
just literally completely and totally frozen. I wanted to give this person anything I had and I could not move my hands. And fortunately, the taxi driver took us away. He said, no, that guy's got leprosy. You know, so I never considered that before because not something you see very much in America. So all sorts of wild stuff happened in Calcutta. But two things that were particularly memorable, and I said, these things just really shifted my whole thing of life. Okay, you grew up in America, you grew up in, you grew up in the West, a very capitalist country, very capitalist area. So if you have a lot of money, life is good. You made it, whatever making it means. And then I started, I started going around and I, I, I took my, I took my, 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 I put my, my money in, in, the, in the hotel I was in, in the lockbox and just had a pair of shorts, some flip-flops and a t-shirt, and a little like one of these little cloth bags they have, they call it Jola. And I just pff, walked and I walked toward the bad side of Calcutta, the left side of Calcutta, which was formerly known, affectionately known as the Black Coal of Calcutta. And I'm going and I'm seeing a quarter of Calcutta's population at that time, were born on the street, lived on the street, and died on the street. So let's not talk about the homelessness we have now. This was like on a whole nother scale. And, uh, and, I, and I saw people literally taking babies and breaking their bones in like the most horrific, so, so they could beg better with them. The, you rent, rent a broken baby is kind of what it was like. And you had various you know, guilds that would have that position. Okay, well, it was, it was and, but then also, Inside the city, you started going. I mean, it's nothing. I mean, it's kind of a mind-blowing thing when you see like where they had the Ganesh thing and you're seeing like the whole thing is filled with rats. People are praying to rats. I have to say, this was like something which, you know, New York City's got a lot of rats, but this is like, come on, man. Like, this is not the sewers. This is like above ground. And then, but the thing that really got me, well, another thing is that I saw people who were living on the street and you could see with a certain percentage of them, this light that was inside them that was pure joy. Now, the, if you look at their external circumstances, they have no reason to even be, to have a rem remotely have a smile, but they were actually, they were beaming. And I'm going, wow. I mean, some of it, you know, could just be brain damage, but no, but a lot of it wasn't. It was really, there was something there. So they were clearly seeing something that I wasn't seeing. And as it then took later on, in one place in Calcutta. Back in those days, they used to have really giant industrial strikes and this and this and that and that. And the whole town would rise up, you know, like, I mean, serious, serious mob scene. You want, you want to see insanity unleashed on the streets, look at that. We're going to one place where it was big, giant, open something rubber. And I was gonna sleep there that night. And we're always in like two cents and you could rent one of these, uh, beds that was made with strings and you can lie on it and for another cent you get a pillow and all of a sudden there's this giant mob over here right and in front of it there's like this group of like i don't know was it five or ten sadhus just standing in front and behind it is like tanks and they sent in the army in the tanks to put down the rebellious workers okay and at one point I'm looking and the thing is that these guys that were there, I found out later they were Raleigh Babas, but their eyes were burning like coals. I mean, when you looked at it, I mean, from like, you know, hundreds of yards away, 
whoa, what is that? Because that's something beyond human. I'm, I'm not going to talk about on the upper end. I mean, just flat out beyond what human beings can be. And then these guys started talking. And I asked the guy next to me, fortunately, my, 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 the guy had the, the cot next to me spoke English. A lot of people in Calcutta spoke English. They come in there and they go, oh, can I have something? And this is my card. And they give you a card. We would have after their name, PhD, and then like 76 letters, you know, and, and, and they're just trying to get any sort of work, you know, even a couple of pennies, because Calcutta at that time was a, a deathly poor place. Okay. But then the guy's talking. I said, what is this guy saying? He's saying, we're going to give you a couple of minutes, turn your tanks around, go the other direction, and we're going to shatter your minds. Okay. That's what he says. And he's, he's facing off tanks, machine guns, tanks. And these guys are staying there like, you know, you guys better get going. You're fucked. You're fucked, but good. And I saw the tanks getting turned around, go the other direction. But that, that, that's how much they were freaked. They, you know, because they, they took them seriously. Now, I don't know what they could have done or not done, but I'm sure that I didn't have to see it. But, you know, and then I went on my way back and I'm out and I'm seeing all sort of what got to go up to Everest, got to. Uh, spent a night in the Taj Mahal in the full moon. It turned out that, that that was the days when you could bribe one of the guards and they'd let you in. And very few people did it. So I spent a night there. So that was pretty trippy. You, have to do the, the, you can't do it now because the, the Taj Mahal has been somewhat damaged by, I don't know if it was terrorists. I don't know what it was the last time I was there. But in that time, it was, you know, the marble and whatnot where the lights are reflecting off it. I mean, you're talking about seriously surreal. And of course, I dropped acid before I went in, which is, you know, kind of like you know, David, your obligatory thing to do. You know, you're in that kind of a tourist spot. But and all these things, I finally get up to Nepal, and, you know, and I end up going up to Everest. And I walked over and, you know, got over the Stolokuma Glacier, 20,000 feet. And, you know, I'm, only, I'm, I'm like having a T-shirt like this and a pair of flip-flops and shorts. Don't ask, don't ask me how I didn't die in the process, but I got lucky. And I was very fit and I was healthy and I was young and I guess all that helped. But then there was something about you when you get up to those high mountains and you see some of those views, they, I mean, they, they kind of blow your mind. But I have to say something, even the views in the Himalayas did not blow my mind as much as that, is that the Emerald of Burma did. That was the one thing to me that was really something spectacular. So then I come back, I come back to Japan, okay, good. And I spent a few months in Okinawa because I had, uh, uh, anyway, I got busted and I still had a lot of dope in my bags that I didn't find because I had sequestered it rather well. And so I had to like stay in Okinawa for a bit. And then, you know, I was told, you know, that the, the commandant said, you know, we want you to train these guys for a mission behind the lines. And if you don't, you're going to spend the rest of your natural life in Okinawa. And it was an American protectorate, so it wasn't an idle threat. Okay. So I did that. And, you know, these crazy mothers, because the, the guy I was with, the guy I did my, I have a thing in karate called special research student. You have to be a third degree black belt. And they quote unquote teach you all the secrets. Turns out most of those secrets are actually from Chinese martial arts. But, you know, in the West, what the hell did we know? So the only was Buddha was a big deal. Okay, it was a big deal. And, um, but, you know, we'd have these guys and it was like, you know, the legion of truly mad people 
Uh, and they, what they would do is that every X number of weeks, they throw knives in the middle of the room saying, you get the instructor, you get a couple of weeks in, in Hawaii. So listen, don't tell this to people who are crazy. So, you know, we, we had to hospitalize them basically because they, they wanted to carve it down to a small enough group because apparently the mission they were going to be on is that there were going to be areas where they, where they couldn't have any metal with them. So it, they had to have the hand-to-hand -hand combat skills. So this was like, you know, so I did that when it was over. Boy, was I glad. And a little bit after that, I had to go to college. So I didn't get, you know, drafted. There was a thing there where you could. There was a, the military had a thing from a university, University of Maryland or something where, and it's, okay, so I did, I, did, I did whatever I had to do to stay out of Vietnam. That's the simple way of putting it. Went back to Japan and just really, really started tr heavily training Tai Chi. And then from the time I had been in, in, in Taiwan, the time before I had been introduced to this group that was, you could call it, they call it a Taoist priesthood. It was very secretive. It's been secretive for thousands of years. And it was one of those things that always, the Taoists have, have a phrase that when governments get bad, just sink down and be down here when nobody sees you. Because if they see you, they'll try and kill you. If they don't see you, they'll leave you alone. So this was one of those groups that was left alone. Um, then I went back and um, anyway, I, I got back to Japan and then I just started training more. I mean, before this time, I was training Tai Chi and Qigong at least six hours a day. I started training more because in those days when I first started, it was only six hours a day because I was also sparring with black belts in karate which i had worked out even though i kind of like quit the whole karate scene i still had friends in it so you know so we get together in some days and beat the crap out of each other you know that's what we did and it was and it was fine i mean frankly speaking i got as much hardcore sparring practice with that as i would have gone going to some dojo but um well then a lot of other things happen and that, let's just say that's the end of college and you know um and so I go back to America and I started teaching my first Tai Chi class. And it was nice. I ended up having, a, we ended up getting a store in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which was a front for a dope dealing operation. But the two guys who wanted to study with me, they used to go and pick up garbage on the street and they would use it to remodel apartments, which actually is a thing in New York. And um, so we did that. And I was involved in it going down. So, you know, let's just say I was, as part of the going down, one of the things that, because I had such a horrendous family background, you take oaths. And uh, I had 84 of them before it was all over. And what you do at the end is that you have to do a kowtow. You have to smash your head on the floor until blood starts coming out of it. Usually when you do something like that, you take the oath you did seriously. Like, well, I promised I wouldn't do this, but well, you know, situation changed. Well, when you get your head cracked like that, believe me, you have a tendency to take it very, very seriously. And so uh, one of the things I had was that because of my, I, it was decided that I was going to be one of the divisions was going to be the whole sexual thing. And so I got put in that. And so basically my vow was that I had to sleep with a thousand women before I would have children, which in one sense, I didn't object to. I never wanted to have children. I never did. I've had two kids, but I never wanted them. It's kind of like it happened and for a bunch of circumstances, but it wasn't like, you know, I met people, I said, well, you know, I really wanted to be a father. And like, I met women, I really want to be a mother, not me. Uh, -uh. I mean, I just really didn't go for that crap. I, I had nothing in my background, which inured me toward that. And I had no, nothing naturally inside me that inured me toward that. But anyway, 
So the Lower East Side during that era was, you know, let's put it this way, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's the only way to put it. Uh, and it was, it was really good. Met some wonderful people and some truly fucking crazy ones. Like I remember one person who had you know, some like some like four hundred acid trips. He's sitting in a chair. He was he was like some he was a designer or he was a writer or he was a cartoon. I can't remember what for one of the the, the big alternative magazines. And he was just like this, sitting like that for over a year. And then I didn't see him again. But I mean, we're talking about you know. What will too much LSD do for you? Well, I got to tell you, I don't know if that was good or bad, but I didn't think it was that great. And uh, so we, we, and that stuff, we did a lot of stuff. So I got to understand the whole counterculture and this and that. I was always the square one because I had come from a world of martial arts and university. I'd studied Asian studies and business administration. That's the only stuff they had that was worth learning. And, you know, and here I come where I'm in the middle of like hippie central. So did all that. You know, still did a bit of bouncing, did security work, uh, mostly just making sure that large amounts of money and product arrived as opposed to were stolen in the middle. Um, and at the end of that period of time, uh, I'm going to just go back, but I said, oh, my friend of mine, who we did Aikido together, it's one of the top Aikido people on the East Coast now that uh, we hitchhiked across the country. And I'll tell you, we had one of the wildest rides. This guy picked us up who was like drunk and, and tulips and, you know, whoa, man. With the end, we were just grateful we arrived alive. I'm seriously, I mean, this this was like, you know, was it worth it? We you know, shit, been better if we could have rented a car, you know, I guess. But the fact of the matter is that we did that. And then in California, you know, this and this and that and that and that and that. And I met a bunch of people and, you know, met some of the big hippie types of that type, met, you know, the, you know, ran some self-defense classes for women. Anyway, then I went back and I went back to, took a plane, went to Europe, hitchhiked up to Scandinavia, spent two weeks there, loved it, you know great women. I, I swear to God, th this is what I would find. And I have to admit, it's never happened anywhere else in the world. And I wish those days had returned, but they never did. Is that I'd just be practicing Tai Chi in a park, or I'd even be doing some Shingi or Bagua in a park. And next thing I know, some girls who started lying on me saying I can invite it home. And that was it. And the thing is that it was like, I was just kind of like, it was a new one every day. So that was interesting. And then I left and then uh, I'm going to go, I was going to go down to Africa because my, what I wanted to do was to, there were African martial arts. I wanted to go from the, the, the tip of Africa down to the bottom. I wanted to fight all the guys there, whatever their martial arts were. I wanted to find out what they were, especially I thought it was going to get really interesting. You got these places where everybody was seven feet tall, you know, and they weren't just, you know, your normal size. They were like, you know, really big. And, you know, I was perfectly prepared if I was going to get my butt kicked or not, but I wanted to give it a go because I wanted to see how far, you know, you, you, you wanted to push your training. I mean, it's a little bit like a boxer. They want to, they want to get out of the amateur leagues and go into the pros. And anyway, but then I get a letter back from my girlfriend in New York about, ah, blah, 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 blah. I wrote her a letter back as I had gotten these boots that I had forgotten because I thought I might be climbing the Himalayas again. I thought really having walked through the Himalayas with flip-flops, I really saw having a decent pair of boots would make a difference. 
and next thing I know, she comes and we're down in Greece and, you know, we hang out there and then I go across and, you know, uh, there's a train that goes from, Te that goes from Istanbul to Tehran. Orient Express, I think is what it's commonly called. And I'm in the middle of this train somewhere in the middle. When we start going toward the Anatolian plain, uh, these Turkish soldiers come on the, come on the, 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 the train and they're going through the train, raping everybody in it. Okay. And that's what they were doing. We're in a friendly bunch. I mean, come, having Greek heritage, we were not prone toward believing that the Turks were nice guys. Okay. Let's just leave it at that. The Ottoman empire was one of the more vicious empires that's ever existed. And that's who Turks were. I mean, it's not all their fault because a lot of their blood comes actually comes from the Mongols. So, you know, it's like Mongol and Muslim, it's bad mix. It's a very bad mix. Anyway, so they're coming through and they're, they're raping people. And they came into the car I was in. They started like, you know, only one guy was in because most of them were on the other end of the train. And uh, they started doing it, you know, and, and, and picking on the girls. And so I kind of get the guy out of the car and I walk him to the edge of the car and uh, next thing I know, the guy, the guy pulls a knife and he sticks it in my throat and he starts going to me and wants me to jerk him off or fuck me or I don't know what he wanted to do. So I took his knife away from him. This train is going at like, you know, really fast. I mean, I don't know what it was, 80, 90 miles an hour, whatever trains did. And it's the middle of the winter. So I opened up the door and I threw him out. Well, I don't know if the guy died, but it's kind of hard to figure out how he lived. But still, since I didn't know he died, that, that made me feel good. You know, allow for the possibility of serendipity taking over. And then we got to Tehran and went through it. And in Mashhad, on my way to Afghanistan, uh, I spent some time in a, a big mosque. And I was in there meditating for four or five hours. And then somebody noticed there was a white guy there. Whoa, they went berserk. And I was lucky to get out of that building alive. And I will have to say this, um, you know, and then going through some places like Shiraz, you know, I, I just thought, the, I thought the carpets in Shiraz and in Iran, some of them were just stunning. You know, I've always thought that if I was ever going to have a, just a job or a profession I would want to do for me, not for any reason, it'd be, I'd be a carpet salesman, not, not, because I just think that there are just some of these Asian carpets. I think there's some of the most beautiful works of art in the world. Now, personal taste, it doesn't really mean much. But anyway, then get to India and all sorts of things. And I ended up, these guys I, who I'd let sleep on my floor in Tokyo, they had told me about this ashram that was in India, where it was, and this and this and that and that. And so, you know, I went there only because I, I knew the name, not for any other reason. It wasn't like I had done some sort of it isn't like today in the internet. You could do an existive short. Want to go to India, learn Kundalini. Where do I go? Want to go to India, learn Pranayama. And I come up with a hundred places. Back in those days, you only found the place you actually heard of. That was it. And it wasn't like there was a book of, you know, good ash ashrams to go to in India. No, no, forget it. I mean, you heard from somebody, from somebody, from somebody, and you ended up there. And so I went to this place and, you know, did all sorts of kind of minor kundalini stuff but i also spent three months doing pranayama 12 hours a day that was the classic thing the classic thing was four sessions a day three hours three hours each and i did that and uh and there was a guy in another guy who was there an old pundit and he he, he knew all the initiations in the tantra 
I can still remember one time, he sometimes could be an erotic little bastard. And uh, he got pissed off. And I, I literally watched him standing. I watched him like grow to be about 12 feet up in here and looking down like, what did you say, son? You know, like, you know, you're pissing me off. You know, really don't do it again. And which I have no way of knowing, was that just a mental projection in my mind? He actually grew, but I wasn't was impressed with it anyway. And then I went up north and I got involved in a, in a very old time Kundalini ashram. It was one of the major ones in India. Very quiet, not, no big name. Uh, the history of that guy was that his guru was a guy called Shivantir, who was really known as kind of, he was a lawyer, but he was also known as kind of like being a real scholar of stuff and like be one, one of the top Kundalini people in India. And um, he was friends with a guy called Nityananda, who was Muktananda's quote-unquote teacher. Except, you see, Nityananda didn't have a method to teach. He was what they called an avanhut. So he had this powerful whatever he had, but he had no, no idea. But they, were, they would go and hang out for like a couple of weeks a year. You know, they had that, that kind of deep respect for each other. And uh, so every time he would come out, Nityananda would, you know, Looked down and be sitting up on a tree. Could you, could you teach me? Blah, 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 blah. So finally said, okay. So he gave him his book and he taught him and he, he taught him some of this stuff. And uh, I ended up studying with that guy who was knitting on his friend. I ended up studying with his inheritor. And I spent a year in a cave practicing, you know, what they call Kundalini Kriyas from morning till night. And I loved it. I enjoyed it. I mean, the whole business about being locked in a cave and being solitary by yourself was the worst thing in the world. I'm sorry. I was getting off on the whole business. But at some point around a year, I started getting horny. Okay, now I've liked girls. And the thing is that I did a stupid thing. They kind of offered, well, if it's that heavy on you, I'll tell you what, give us a couple of bucks and we'll send a girl up to you once a month, shag her for a day, you know, take the pressure off and go back to what you're doing. And, but I was going to, I was a purist. I was going to do it the right way, quote unquote. And I was an idiot. I was a fool. And looking back on it, that's really what I should have done. I think it would have been the best thing in the world. And who said that had happened? I might've stayed in that cave for 10 years. To tell you the truth, we had no trouble whatsoever, but I didn't. And finally, it just became time to leave. And so I left and um, I got a case of hepatitis and it was really, really not. Well, it was, it was, it was a HEPA something. I found out later on from a person who had been a doctor and who, that he said, yeah, that, and what you had, it sounds like something that most people think is hepatitis, but it actually isn't. But all the symptoms were, okay. Uh, this happened when I was in South India and the doctor came in and said, look, if you have anybody you want to contact, let them know because the odds are that in you know, whatever so many hours, you're going to be dead, okay? That you look like you are on the way out, my son. And so I got up and I did Tai Chi and I had learned how to run energy through my channels reasonably well. And most people learn Tai Chi, they only learn, you know, they learn how to move their hands. Isn't that pretty? It's very nice. And the fact that they're just going to have their intent go with where their hands are going, that, 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 that's enough, enough for me. I was actually into what the thing was. And so I learned how to run the channels of my body. And I did that until finally, you know, I did it for so long and I just got exhausted. I collapsed, I slept for a couple of days. And when I, when I woke up, I was alive, but the two people who had gotten sick with me, they were dead. This was like the type of things. And especially which one of them had died before I did that. 
and you're seeing the person next to you in the bed that's over there and they're dying, believe me, motivation arises. Okay, that's all there is to it. And so, okay. So then I go up and I'm doing all these careers. I'm spending all this time in a cave. I'm doing this and this and that and that. And I met a girl uh, when I realized that I had to get out of that, that cave too because deliver the heat in my body. And back in that, I mean, the Rishikesh had gone from like, like 100, 120 degrees and had been that way for months. Now, for someone that's hepatitis, that's like, it's like being boiled in oil, you know, from the inside. And so anyway, we met each other and blah, 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 blah. And so we said, okay, we're going we're, we're, we're to hike it to Kashmir because Kashmir is cool. And I also had an interest in Kashmiri showers, and that's one of the other three major branches of Tantra in India. And so I said, okay, let's kill two birds with one stone. So went up there and she gets raped by this guy. And, and because we were, we were friends, I had made friends with Sheikh Abdullah, who was uh, the, son, Tariq, the son of Sheikh Abdullah, the Perdalashin line of Kashmir, who ended up, uh, who was the one who led all the revolution in Kashmir and then later on became the head of the government and this and that. And, um, my friend, my friend Ahmed, he introduced us, and he was an Afghani, and uh, and he knew this guy Baharat, the guy, the, the guy who was the rapist. What turned out later, we found this guy had raped more people than you can count. But because his father owned the major car company in southern Kashmir, he got let, let loose of everything. I mean, India, if you can pay off, that's it. There's no such thing as crime. That that that's a joke. And maybe it's that. Maybe it's not that way now. It sure was that way then. And anyway, so, but again, and I'm, and I'm practicing this whole time nonstop, but then, uh, you know, we, we, we get locked up because he's trying to have us killed. Okay. And I mean, I'm, 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 I'm having plenty to meditate on, but also I'm really losing my temper. I mean, all I wanted to do is just put me alone in alone with the guy in a room. Just give me five minutes. I don't need more than that. You know, I can tear all his arms and legs off at that point. And, um, but it didn't happen. And then in the end, I brokered a deal to where I could get out because, you know, I didn't have it. My visa kind of expired. And I was able to go out and go back to Rishikesh, go to India, leave India. And uh, anyway, the thing, the thing was, it was in the newspapers in India called the fall of the government of Kashmir. It caused the, uh, it caused the Muslims with Sheikh Abdullah to come back into power. And as everyone knows, there's been a whole lot of stuff about nuclear weapons around that area, making everybody nervous for a lot of years. And I've never really been clear, would I have just been better off letting my Afghani friend kill him and kill his family? as what he originally thought. But I thought that I didn't want to set off that kind of a karmic wave. So it just set off a fear wave at other times. Anyway, so I'm, I'm, back, in, I'm back in Delhi and they send somebody to kill me and I'm going up to American Express to get some letters and get some money. And they sent a guy to kill me and he tried to, you know, take his knife and gut me on the, on the stairs. And let's just say he went flying down those stairs with a few broken bones. And that was the end of that. Went back up to Rishikesh and uh, my girl said, don't worry about it. We take care of you. If they try and send people up here, that's really not going to work. I mean, if you want to get the yogis in India deciding that you should be protected, you will get protected. And that's all there is to it. But it wasn't. So then I, I went back to the Far East and I studied then 
I got right back into, you know, I was in Hong Kong just for a couple of weeks and checking out various martial art teachers and whatnot. But then I went back to Taiwan and then that begins a whole nother section of my life. So for the next three and a half years, I'm shuttling back and forth between Taiwan and Hong Kong. And I'm doing stuff with the Yi Guan Dao and I'm, 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 we're going to all sorts of stuff. It's a, I mean, some, some of the people were some of the best martial arts masters in China, as well as it was all the stuff to do with meditation, as well as it was, you know, hands-on Qigong healing. And I'm, I'm doing all these things. And I, I learned, I can, I, I learned the whole thing of the Taoist liturgies and it was a lot of stuff because I was a priest. And so, you know, it's like, yeah, it's a little bit easier if you're like trying to become a Catholic priest. I mean, you learn the Bible, you learn the rosaries, you know, you learn how to do a couple of, you learn how to, you learn how to do a couple of rituals. But this stuff was, I'm serious, was like microdot. It was like going to MIT for spirituality. And so, you know, got through that. And then at the end of that time, when I, I just decided I had to go back for various and sundry reasons. Big one is I had run out of money. Other one is I, I just I, I need to leave. That's all I can say. And that I need I wanted to go back to the West and I wanted to teach. And I had a good friend of mine, uh, and so in England who had been a big karate champion. So I went there and I taught in his school and I taught around North England and did that. But went I went so I went back to England. I went to England and then I went to America and stayed in a couple of months. Um, me my friend had an apartment in a place called Moss Side, which was like Harlem or something. It was like the 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 the, 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 the dangerous part of whatever. So I mean, I'd be, I'd be going out and practicing outside the house and doing all these things. And I only had once or twice where people tried to hassle me. I only had once where anybody attacked me because I wanted to get the white boy. And you know, I just kind of like you know made him go to sleep, and that was it. You know, when you stand in front of someone, you knock them down, they can't move, and you put your foot right on their throat, and you say, "Now look." I got no quarrel with you. Let's not make one. They leave you alone. I mean, that's it. You know, either that or they come back with 30 of their friends and then things really get hairy. And that could happen too, but it didn't. I mean, it wasn't like that. I think they could just kind of get it. So they let me be. Went back to America and just taught for, you know, almost two, three years. Went back to New York again, taught for two, three years. And uh, just before that time, uh, just before that time, uh, on one of the last days when I was in Hong Kong, there was a guy and I was staying in this hostel in, in Hong Kong, Chungking Mansions, which is where, where do the poorest of the poorest foreigners stay? Because I worked hard and I saved every penny I had and I tried to stretch it out. The only thing I really did was spend money on food, anything the Dawson and you know, whatever, whatever teachers wanted to get paid. And so I paid them. I mean, I didn't do the overwhelming majority of the tourists and this and that stuff, unless a local who liked me took me and they paid for it. I mean, I was just, I was there like a foreign student. I was just there to learn. That's what's the only reason I was there. Cause you know, and I like Taiwan. I must admit Hong Kong was a shit to live in. I mean, it's, it's a really, it's so crowded. It was a horrible place to live in. And, you know, the only, the only, I mean, Hong Kong was a good place to live in if all you wanted to do was make mega bucks. That was the only place in the world I ever found, at least in that era, that made New York seem to be a town that didn't care about money. Okay, remember Wall Street and all that? That's like center of capitalism. Hong Kong was worse. It was like 
right in their soul is the best way I can put it. And that's pretty much how the rest of the Chinese thought of them, actually. Most of China didn't like the Cantonese. But, but then I'm here and I'm in this hotel and uh, there's a bunch of people staying in there. So, you know, there's this one guy who was making like he was some sort of, you know, big time yogi or something. But in his, and there's an American kid who had gone to one of the exchange programs in Taiwan. And then there was this really beautiful Swedish girl who was a model. And I really had the hots for her. Never worked out, but wasn't for one of trying. Uh, but then he said, oh, this and this and that and that. So, but the American kid, he said, oh, oh, you do Bagua, okay. And uh, his father had been in the Flying Tigers, which was a, a, a military air wing program that used to fly missions in India and take stuff from India over into Burma to fight the Japanese. And so he had a friend and that friend, two steps downstream, they owned, they owned the martial art magazine. So I went there and I was talking to the guy and this and that. And for years, that guy would just, he would just send me like, you know, hey, especially like, who's the best in this thing or that thing? And he'd get me an introduction to school and I'd go down there. Uh, but this one time he said, there's a guy who's just come in. He just put a, an ad in the paper that he's from Beijing and he does Bagua and he's going to be seeing people for like two weeks and that's it. So I went there. It's up on a roof of building. And as soon as I saw him do his Bagua, I said, I said, this is the real stuff. Cause I had done Bagua with Wang Xijing and I had done it with other people in Taiwan, but it was very clear that, you know, he heard stories about the original Beijing Bagua. But the first time when I actually saw it, I said, yeah, that's it. Anyway, so I did some stuff with him. And next time I came back to Hong Kong, I lived with him. And beside, beside teaching me, you know, the stuff he had learned from Leo Hong Jay, he also taught me uh, some of the, my main teacher in Beijing later. He also taught me some of the Huashan, the fire traditions and the Maoshan stuff, including Neidana, the inner cosmic egg. Like, you know, when I learned that at the end of it, I was like, I sat down and I sat for a week without knowing any time had passed. And um, so did that stuff, which is, I've never done Tumo in Tibetan Tumo because I kept trying to do it in that whole era. No one would teach it. They would always come up with all this bullshit about the idea you had to have, well, now they'll teach you. Now you can learn it. But back in those days, they said, well, you had to have this background. I've done this and I've done that. And I said, okay, never mind. It's not, it's not worth it. But so anyway, I did that stuff. And then I went and then I flew back to England. I took my friend's school and then I went back to New York. Did all sorts of stuff and then saved my money. And then, you know, I went back again. So I'm about 1980 and I was there for another Taiwan, Hong Kong. I was always going back and forth between Taiwan and Hong Kong because of visas. You can stay about six months, then before the six months was over, we'd fly to the next place, stay there for some period, fly back again. So it, it was, what do you call it? It's like the equivalent today of shuttle diplomacy or something. But uh, so that, that was, it was okay. I mean, you did what you did. And, um, and I met a lot of interesting people in Hong Kong, but not as much as, not as much as Baihua. He was more interesting than anybody else I met. And I, I met so many people who made so many, I would hear, well, you hear this in Asia, hear all these stories about this great teacher and what they do and blah, blah, blah. The only trouble is when you check almost all of them out. 
we find that it's a lot of exaggeration because the one thing that a lot of people have is that I have a teacher. Okay, so put it this way. My teacher is Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, Jesus Christ, we know, is a really big deal. So if you're Jesus Christ student, you get the reflected glory off of Jesus Christ. That must mean you're close to being what Jesus Christ is. Even, and I would be like saying that, well, my teacher was uh, the head of the head of whatever, whatever department at Oxford, but I actually only finished kindergarten. And, you know, all that stuff in the middle that was implied as your teacher being from Oxford, you know, doesn't really mean much. So, you know, I met a lot of people and stuff and, you know, I was in the martial arts and there's a, um, there was an idea the Chinese had about martial arts, which is now kind of to a certain degree became what you call MMA. Like they had the idea that, you know, you should be able to fight standing up on the ground, chokes, this, that. And that's what I did my whole life. I mean, you know, I, I, did, I did judo. And then judo, wait a second, well, you got to hit the guy because the guy's going to try and hit you. So like the karate. And then, oh, wait a second. But what about the grabby? What about wrist locks? jiu-jitsu and then aikido other kind of wrist locks and then so you're doing that to where you're learning all these various things but there also was that you want to learn how to fight other people because in all china they had a whole system of challenge matches which they, they were always run on the basis of three basic rules touch maim or kill well touch means you touch him, but you can knock him out, still touching, maiming. Their body never works again. <laughs> okay, you know, they're cripples for life. And kill is obviously self-explanatory. It didn't mean you had to kill him or maim him. But if you wanted to, if that's what was happening, if that was the best counter to a situation, so something didn't happen to you, okay, there we go. And this required, I had to go through this whole thing with the Egon Dallin have many, many, many fighting matches that were, I don't want to go into it because people just take it for their appearing interest. Let's just say they were really rough and a lot of people died in those, in those matches. And, you know, some of them were in there because it was kind of like, uh, if you want to do a professional sports team, you know, you have to do something where you sink so many goals or you throw so many passes or you do something. Well, in this, I mean, you had to kill so many people or you had to maim so many people. You had to, you had to show that you were really hell on wheels. Okay. And which meant that uh, it wasn't play martial arts. It wasn't sports martial arts. I mean, sports, you don't want to kill the person you have in a sports with. You can't have a game next week. Okay. But so I went through those things and um, because I was doing it and this was a requirement, I didn't do it because I wanted to. And I want to really get that straight. I did enough competitions that were not as nasty as that, but just, you know, a lot of bones got broken. I mean, when I was in high school in these karate terms, I swear to God, you always had a lot of people going to the hospital. Bones got broken. It's, it's actually... It's safer to do it with the pads and be able to hit the person all the way and do it barefisted. You're not supposed to hit them, but everybody does. It's actually worse. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that all these type of all these type of matches that they want to do it for one reason. They wanted to see if your mind could go in steady, stay steady, come out of it without accruing any karma. 
Now that's a lot easier said than done. You don't want to have any karma. All right, it's a simple thing. I don't know. I'm going to get an ice cream or not. Okay, I'll let it go. I won't get the ice. You don't get karma. Nothing when someone's trying to kill you. It's nothing when someone's trying, when someone is bringing up every primal emotion in your body and system. And it's all happening. I mean, it's, it's, it's happening really fast. You know, it's not like, like an intellectual can go, yes, I think, this, I think this proposition is not correct and I'm now going to write a 400-page book and I'm going to diagram by why, why. Well, okay, let, let, let's take all that 400 pages and the first and. That's it. It's all there. So it, it's very instantaneous and it's very, uh, I believe the word people used to use was intense. Okay. So, but you're going through all that. And you know, I got I got at the end of it to where no, it just didn't. It's okay. Life happens, death happens, this happens, that happens. And if you really want to think about what is the difference between you know driving a bone into someone's brain or scratching your head, they're actions. That's all they are, actions. However, if you talk about the emotional and the mental and the psychic content that can be driving those actions, that's not the same thing as the action itself. And so there was a thing that you had, you had actually had to get to the point to where the quote unquote non-attachment, you had to be able to do it under, shall we say, uh, high pressure, very high pressure. And that wasn't even enough. You had to get to the point to where it was very obvious you were undergoing no pressure. And so this requires, this is a little bit my kind of my, my theory about meditation in general. What I've observed now, I'm, I'm saying this is what I've observed after like doing it for like, you know, 60 plus years. You know, that's something I came up with last week. Is oh, I had a workshop. My God, did I get an insight? If you take something using an example, Tibetan Buddhism, okay? Because beside what I did in Taoism, which is my main thing, I'm also um, a duly authorized Dzogchen teacher, which is the highest level of Tibetan Buddhism, okay? But if we talk about the mind, and in Asia, the term they use is the heart-mind. This came in, heart is emotions, and mind is thought, but no, it's not that. What lies at the core? What lies right at the center of your consciousness? Okay? That what you have with all these practices is that most people live on the surface. They don't have the faintest clue what's inside them. They don't have what is, what is inside them that transcends time, place, and circumstance. Oh, they know what's in this. Oh, well, I think this, and I thought that, and my logic went this way, blah, 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 blah. Words, 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 write 5,000 volumes. But you don't actually get to what that nub at the center of your consciousness is. In all the methods, whatever, whatever, ones they are it's like you start up here you're on the surface in all of them like tibetan buddhism they have all the yanas and each yana is taking you just a little bit deeper in and a little bit deeper in but that little bit deeper in unless you're actually in doesn't seem to exist oh it can seem it can exist in terms of being a mental idea a mental construct okay like when i finally got rid of my dear old mom uh, that happened because I was in Beijing. This is after this period. And I was with Leo. And, and, and one time he, he gave me the line because he was, 
he was formally declared enlightened in Tiantai Buddhism. Then he learned Taoism. And that was his phrase. He said, first you learn Buddhism, you learn Taoism. And he said, and, but I, I, in all fairness, right? Because the Tibetans would say the opposite. No, ours is the best in the universe, blah, 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 blah. Which I was like, oh, really? That's nice. It's a good story. Um, but the, the Buddhism that, was, that Leo was exposed to was not Tibetan Buddhism. It was Mahayana Buddhism. And schools like Huayan and Tiantai and Chanzong. You have these different forms. And yet, as you start looking at it, when you start going and you start penetrating, each of those layers of the mind you go through, it eventually created a school. And the school got a name. And the school got a philosophy. And the school said, blah, 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 blah. Which all, if you just do it purely from an intellectual dissection point of view, can work. But it's not actually what they're discussing because it's one thing to describe a plate of food really, really well. It's nothing to get it in your mouth and taste it. You don't, you don't, and, and you can't get that the representation is not the same thing as the thing itself. You know, it's, it's like the menu in a restaurant. Well, yeah, a goat can eat the menu. And they do. They're known for it. Okay, they lick the stuff off of tin cans and eat it. But I'm sorry, they're not eating the metal. They're not getting to what it is. So at each of these levels you go through, and at each one of those levels has a different way that, if you want to use the term ego, I prefer the term heart-mind, because I think, I think the word ego has been kind of cheapened by Freud. Because Freud was talking about the ego in terms of psych psychology, in terms of how people think. Now everything in Taoism, I'm just finished. I'm just finished writing writing a Tao Te Ching. It's like over 1,200 pages. I'm just explaining what they told me what the thing meant. Because almost every Tao Te Ching that's out there is actually written by Confucians or by Buddhists. They have no idea what the Taoists thought of the Tao Te Ching. They really didn't. So I'm just trying to put that thing out. I just finished it like little, literally last week. And this was like after eight years of nonstop. And I'd already written 15 books before that. Okay. But I never liked writing. I always hated writing. I mean, it took me six or seven books to actually be able to write without feeling I was having a root canal done to me. But these going as you go through those layers, stuff happens to you that you forget about all this stuff because in Taoism they have they have two two ideas. And it's not exactly the same, but it's close enough to the Buddhist idea of samsara and nirvana. They call it the mind of man and the mind of Tao. Now, the mind of man has got one really big flaw in it. The mind is a wonderful, thinking is a wonderful slave that allows you master. In Western world, almost everything, it is the mind of man that dominates. It's the words, it's the ideas, it's the structure. It's not what the reality is, okay? Now, you know, you can have a gun and you can, you can describe that gun in, God damn it, a thousand volumes. But you know something? A thousand volumes can't put a bullet inside somebody. When the bullet comes up, you have to begin to know what actually is it. And when you want to free people of whatever their internal chains are, that's important. So, for example, where this was going before is that Leo one day said to me, uh, 
And a lot of Buddhists I know have, have, have busted the chops of Rinpoche's after Rinpoche's. They all said, oh yes, you, you wanna think of everybody as your mother who's been kind to you? What the fuck are you talking about? My mother was a witch of the first magnitude. The Dalai Lama, when he first came, people literally said that to him. You know, they were supposed to, no, they literally came out because their, their blood was boiling so heavy. What the hell are you talking about? My mother was a goddamn witch. And you're telling me I'm supposed to, well, I mean, you know, they need to say, because, yeah, because look, the one thing your mother did is she gave you life. And that's a debt you never can pay back. You couldn't create your own life. And are you really saying it bothers you that more? It's an easy solution. Kill yourself. You can take the gift right back. Just knock yourself off and you don't have to worry about your mother anymore. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, he said that and I went ballistic. I will admit, I, I, I mean, you know, Enough was enough. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I was okay with all this philosophy and it was true. And as I was practicing it, I found that everything he said was true. And I really took it inside and I really worked the hell out of it. But this one, I said, wait a minute. So he, he, he just looked at me and he saw who was there. He said, well, you know, we have a phrase in China. If parents can't be parents, children can't be children, which kind of did sum the whole thing up. I mean, you know, in that sense, my mother's madness had robbed me of my childhood. But then again, from her point of view, I thought she was giving me a childhood. So you know, we, we have now, you can look at the same thing and you see two different things, point of view and all that stuff. So it went, I went through this and you know, nine months later, my mother was gone. All the impressions of it, I mean, are gone. So well, it, it pretty much. And, Wait a while, the last vestiges of the tree, you've chopped down the tree, you've cut the roots, just give it a while for the last roots to go. It'll drift off. And I found that to be true. I could never have a civilized conversation with my mother. I can now, but I went back and would go back to New York a couple of times a year for only one purpose, to do therapy on her, to somehow see if what I had learned about all this stuff could reduce her human suffering. Because Lord knows she had a lot of it. I mean, I gave up any idea of my mother ever being sane. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't try and say she's sane, but she is so much better. She's not, her mind doesn't torture her the way it did for the whole time I knew her my whole life. And, you know, and a lot of that kind of stuff was because I didn't treat her at the level of bloody words. I, but because I knew how to go into her mind. I knew how to release the layers with, that she didn't even know were in her, were in her. And it wasn't just, you know, clever uh, strategies for reframing what was in her head. Because when you have someone who's truly mad, you don't reframe anything. It really, it really that's, a, that's a myth. You can make it a little bit better. But anyway, now I can actually have an hour conversation with my mother. And although she has got her quirks, because she's still not using a fruitcake, but still, you know, but at least it can be, at least it can be semi pleasurable. At least it can be okay. And it's great for her. And it, is, it isn't making my skin crawl, which I would consider to be a major success story as far as I'm concerned. But we had to go through all these things. And so, you know, so I did this thing and just slept with a lot of women because you know, it may sound funny. It wasn't my choice to do all these fights. It wasn't my choice to sleep with thousands of women. You got to believe it. it's really fucking weird when you got to have a little book. One, check, two, check, three, check. No, I mean, the number of a thousand was literally, it wasn't a metaphor. Okay. So, all right. So, okay. So good. You know, I mean, 
I mean, the only the one thing that comes at the end of that is that, you know, after you've, you've, I'll quote Marlon Brando on this. I saw him on a little thing on YouTube the other day. And he just said, at that time, you know, ah, you know, sex, it wasn't that much. But I was sleeping with a, with a, a new woman or two every day. And this was going on for years. Because he was just somehow, everyone always said he was like the most beautiful man and, you know, whatever, he had this incredible charisma. But then, yeah, I got to say something, no matter how good something is, too much of a good thing and you'll get somewhat. Uh, all right. I mean, what is it? I mean, yeah, maybe if there's real genuine love attached to it, that's different. But that's just not the sex because the sex at a certain point, you can actually start diagramming everything that happens inside of it. And that was what we did. I mean, we got what channel opens, how that closes, what this does that, what that does that. But then at a certain point, like, you know, it's like you've got the best chef in the world. Tell me how many, how many creme brulees are you going to eat? I mean, that's it. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's the best creme brulee that the universe will ever throw up. Yeah, yeah it's just a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand, you know, enough already. But um, so I went through this and then this, at a certain point in China, several things happened. You know, like one of the things that happened is that Leo was teaching me dissolving and, you know, and I, I kind of did the, oh, oh, woe is me. Okay. And my mother, she, you know, crying like a three-year-old baby or something, which is what people do. I mean, frankly speaking, listen to people who've had difficulties with their parents and they will be happy. They will be happy to bitch and moan about it for months on end. Anyway, finally, that stuff started going and one day, all of a sudden, poof, I just could see the stuff that happened, but had no, no, no impact. Because at a much deeper level of my mind, I cleared out what the irritation was. I mean, if you get some sort of bugs in Asia, and you're scratching your arm, I mean, because it's so hard. I mean, literally, you could take it right down to the bone. And, uh, but if you take the irritant away, it will heal, and it will finally be all right. But that irritant's got to go away. Well, it took nine months. Took nine months for me to come in. It took nine months for this to go out. But in the middle of that, I had a couple of things which I said, which were good for motivation, uh, or at least they kept me going. Because you know, when your blood's when your blood's boiling coming out of your eyeballs, you need something to chill you out. And so I said, "Oh, my mother, when she was so hard." And and then, then I then I said this little line, which is I swear to God, whenever I hear people say this, I just smile. It's it wasn't fair. And he looked at me like, are you out of here? What is fair? The universe is fair? Are you telling me when a star destroys planets, it's fair? And Because there is no such fair as a human construct. There is no such thing as fair. And so he said, okay, so great. So I'm going to have you meet some people. Okay, so I met some people. And the first one I meet is this, this girl who in a park uh, at a time, it's like, you know, where there were more, there were more trees around us. And Beijing, most of the parks in Beijing are really not, you know, they're, they're not, they're, they're not like Hyde Park in London where everything's green and there's lots of bushes. I mean, there's not that much of it. And uh, I meet this woman and she comes down and uh, she starts talking to me and I'm going, oh shit, I hit it right here. You know, beautiful girl. She's got a dress on from here and all the way down. I mean, beautiful, stunning. Forget about movie stars. I mean, really, they're, they're pale imitations. But this woman was, I mean, she's about as beautiful as it gets. And so I started talking and I was saying, oh, yeah. And somehow the conversation got around to the cultural revolution. 
which is like one of the really sad and miserable stories of China. It's like, you won't find a person who went through the Holocaust who would like to talk about the good old days in Germany. And that's just not going to happen because it was, everything was just so really beyond the pale. Anyway, so she starts telling me what her story was. Well, you know, when I was younger, I was about 16, I was the village beauty. And I'll tell you, you looked at her and, you know, she must have been somewhere in her 30s. This woman was a stunner. I've never met a woman more beautiful than her. Okay. And I met a lot of women. And, and the village had had the idea, and this was a very old Chinese idea. They take that girl and they, they give her everything and everything, and then they marry her off to a magistrate, to, to high government official. Then, because he loves her or whatever, then, then the magistrate makes everything good for the village. Okay, you get the higher ups to you make your life better. And so that's what they figured was going to happen to her. Around this time, Mao Zedong used to be in Tiananmen, and he would get up in front of a crowd of sometimes hundreds of thousands. And uh, when he would start going into his tirades, if you think Hitler was good, I'm telling you, Mao was better. As much as I can gather, I mean, never having seen the two of them next to each other. And you know, it was very, very common that when he would go on, girls, their pants would become wet, okay? Which is like, you know, I never heard that ever happening with Hitler. Okay, but anyway, and he would then also tell the guys about how they should go and destroy all the old things of the old culture and confusion, the four olds and this and this and that. And, that. and then he'd say, go out my children and destroy, okay? And they took him for, they, I mean, really, it hopped them up. And they were like a person who was, you know, high on meth who got some funny idea in his head. There was no limit to how far they would go. So anyway, this crowd of these boys arrives in her village. And uh, they're walking around and, you know, the village doesn't know quite what to make of them. Uh, but then, you know, they, they, they see this girl and they go, whoa, hey, I have a, I'll have a piece of that. And... Uh, and they start going, hey, honey, you know, you want it, you want it. And she goes, she, she, she does the demure, you know, modesty and everything. That was something, we're not good enough for you. Next thing you know, this group of boys, uh, they rape her. They tear her clothes off. They rape her. If anybody in the town tries to stop them, you know, basically they pummel them half into the ground to their bloody mess. And then they do that. And then she still goes and she's still giving a little bit of resistance. And so they take her out to the graveyard where all the village people have died. And China was the nation of ancestor worship. They believe your ancestors from way up here comes down and helps you down here. And they shagger on the tombstones. Now, there, you cannot get a bigger loss of face like that for a village. I mean, that's it. I mean, seriously, this, this, this would be like a person wanting to take responsibility for having stuck a million Jews in Auschwitz. And yeah, I did that. Wasn't that a great thing? Hell, man, I'm telling you, we had nothing to do that Friday night, so got them in the ovens. Well, okay. And in the end, they leave her a bloody mess and, you know, this and this and that and that. Keep in mind, because she, she's being raped by at least 100 boys, maybe 1,000. She didn't mean the man, you know, the, the shock, the trauma. It isn't like, you know, you've got an abacus and you're keeping count. 
It doesn't work that way. And so I'm listening to all this and I'm, I'm like, wow, shit. Man, I thought things were bad for me. It wasn't fair. This is like grim. And then all of a sudden I snap. I'm like, wait a minute, this can't be true. Come on, this could not have happened to a human being. And I said, oh, this there. And she says, well, okay, come here. Follow me. So we go over to the bushes. We go over to the bushes and she takes her, she takes her dress off. And on almost every inch of her body are knife cuts, cigarette burns, and you name it. They didn't do anything above the neck for some reason. But I mean, her tits, I mean, I, I don't understand how they didn't fall off, frankly speaking. I mean, like, this is like, like grim shit. And then she puts it back on. And she's saying that, you know, well, your teacher is a Dallas immortal. And he asked me to talk to you. Because he just said that, you know, you've got to go, whatever has happened to you, keep in mind in the way that the universe flows, it may not be such a big thing. All right. So that, that was one. That was kind of like, that was a, that had an impression. Okay. Let's just put it this way. And so, you know, you should practice. Yeah. You better believe I'll practice because I realized that if she can get over what happened to her, mommy dearest was like, you know, a minor aggravation. So then a little bit later, I meet another guy. And he's, he's small. He's about five foot four, five foot five. And, you know, I'm practicing and, and we end up doing a little bit of pushing hands or something in the park. And this guy was funny. I mean, I'm talking about truly hilarious. He at times could get me bent over in half and I couldn't control the laughter. He was that funny. I mean, you know, he was like, if you want to say, you know, distilled sweetness and light or essence and light, that, that guy had it. I've not, you know, I've met these rinpoches, I've met these big gurus. None of them had the natural joy and compassion coming out of this guy did. It was like, it was like freaky. I mean, I really, I don't have any other word for it. Anyway, so and we finally sit down in the old park bench. Okay, he says, oh, what's your story? And he says, well, you see, I had been in Dallas before the Cultural Revolution. I hadn't got that far in it, but I got the basics. And then the Cultural Revolution happened, and I got sent to the countryside. Now, the camp that we got sent to, they had this thing called Reform Through Labor. It was the whole idea that you take city people and you make them do all the crap, you know, the peasants do, you know, dig the manure, dig this, and this was somehow going to make them realize the suffering and the struggle of the Chinese peasants, and somehow that was going to reform them, therefore reform through labor. Anyway, and so he said they made, they made us start doing um, Anyway, so they had they had the prison guard. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I think about this. I mean, it's like, you know, because I remember that for years, I just said, I wish the hell I could have met that warden. I would personally like to have gotten my hands on him. The woman who raped, you know, my girlfriend when I was a teen, teen <laughs> he was a sweetheart. This guy was nasty. This guy had a very interesting intellectual proposition. You know, the mind is a wonderful slave, but a lousy master. He said, how long could you torture a person twice a day and keep them alive? Now, understand something. When you have, and the Chinese are good at torture. I mean, let's not, you know, 
they have a long and noble history of torture. It was always a completely sanctioned method of imperial policy, of governmental policy. You know, here, when you torture someone in America, they go, ah, I want to bring the law down. You, no, nah, no, nah, there, it was just, well, he's just doing the job. What do you want? And so he would torture him twice a day. And, you know, he'd be okay for the first five minutes and then, you know, forget it. I mean, he just went berserk. Most people, when they're tortured, when they're really given the nasty stuff, the reason why they die is their central nervous system just gives out. Their nervous system gives out, their brain just goes pop and they, you know, somehow they hemorrhage in one way or another. Anyway, he's, he's doing this. And uh, he said, what I would do is I, I just would somehow get, take it as best I could, okay? And then when it was over and I got back to my cell, I would just dissolve. That's a primary Taoist meditation technique is in a dissolving. And I would just dissolve everything that was done to me. And then, so then at least by the time I went the next day, I had less of a buildup to have to overcome. You know, because it's like, if you were, you have this, you have to overcome this, but when this, this, and this, and this, like you're going to overcome this whole thing at once, which is very hard. And he said, you know, and I went through this and he went through this twice a day for five years. And the only reason why he got off in the end is that there was some other person who was uh, kind of a higher up who was doing a tour of the camps. And he said, what the fuck is this guy doing? This is too much. And so we let him go. Okay, and it took him years to get past this. But he, he said, he said, you know something? I must admit that when this was happening to me, I thought life was not fair and that the gods had personally had it in for me. But then he said, you know something? At the end, I think it was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. Because in those couple of years, I became enlightened. For real. All the way. Because I had to go through everything. And I do mean everything. And so he said, look, don't, 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 don't. you know, I guess the thing, there was a book that was written in the States that kind of sums up what his point of view was. Don't sweat the small stuff. Okay, although when a person is irritated, when a person is very unawake, every tiny bit of small stuff tears them apart. Where if you finally actually go through where you get rid of almost all the small stuff, you don't, you get through most of the big stuff. You don't take the small stuff that seriously. And, you know, which means a lot when you get a person who was, who experienced their life as being exceedingly unfair before the age of six or 12, if they don't get past that, that's the rest of their life. They don't have the rest of their life. They don't actually live a life. They just live a constant replay. So anyway, he said that and I listened to him and we did a little bit and he said, you know, and he just said, you know, listen to your teacher. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> okay, It's about where he left it. And I, I took that serious because you could tell when he was telling this stuff, this was for real. I mean, the force of it, like, you know, almost like lit up the entire park. And so all this stuff, you know, like the Buddha talked about, Lao talked about that, you know, the Tao, this thing that never begins, never ends, never goes on. It's true. And there's this constant continuity that just goes and it goes through everything. And if you practice Dzogchen, you're going to find the same thing. It isn't like it's a different thing. And I can't, I can't state 
what it was like in Hinduism because in Hinduism, I didn't go that far. But from everything I could see and what I can remember about my guru and what I can remember about a few other gurus I met, it seems like it probably did. Although you, you got to realize there is, this, there is this one thing about spiritual traditions. Religions are worse because religions are about just having a big organization, lots of followers, lots of money, lots of everybody saying, oh, Puba, you wonderful big Puba. Okay, and that's what they're about. But the fact of the matter is that when you, a fundamental principle that's both in Taoism and in Dzogchen, Okay, because Dzogchen is, is the form of Buddhism I know the best since, although I did all the, you know, I, I did all the pujas and I did all the, the Hinayana and I did, I, did all the, I did all the earlier stuff and, you know, I could go through it if I wanted to. I don't. I mean, it was never my style. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a deity worshiper. My family were big shots in the Greek Orthodox Church and my grandfather left so they couldn't trap him into it. So I kind of like started with a prejudice against that to begin with. But with all these things, you're going into what's really, really deep in you. And the question is that, I think, at a very simple psychological level, can you really live with yourself? Can you just live with yourself? Can you accept what's in you, good, bad, or indifferent? And if stuff you got inside you is pure shit, nonsense, destructive, you... Fix it for God's sake. I mean, you know, if your if your house had a had a hole in the roof, you don't want to fix it, right? Especially before the storms. But you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna discount the rooms that don't have that don't have the, the holes in it. So I think that that all these things they start leading to that point, and it's it's uh, yeah you have two I think big problems that you get with religions, even spiritual traditions. Because religions, you know, what we call religions are very simple. God. Abrahamic. But it doesn't matter what it is. As long as there's a God. It doesn't matter what the God is. The God could be Odin. It doesn't matter. You know, does it want to be Yahweh? Does it want to be, you know, Jesus? Does it want to be... There's a God. Which means that there is a super being. And that we are created by him. He's in charge of all of it. But then there are also religions that are just talking about what is the nature of the universe and how do you kind of live with that? Each of them have their methods. But if it's truly a spiritual thing, it's never about a God. It's really not. Although in the West, that's how we think. And we think about it for a very good reason. We got the gunpowder from the Mongols. We conquered the world with the gunpowder. And you know, what is it now? It's a dumb, great phrase he had power emanates from the barrel of a gun. That would made the whole world scared crap of us. When they revolted against us, we shot them, we blew them up. And every one of those things says, well, because we blew them up, we must be the best. Now, it's, it's, it's not about better or worse. I mean, I've, I've, sometimes I think the Tibetans go, I, I have a friend of mine who's a, a very, very good Tibetan Buddhist. And sometimes he just goes right over the top with thinking that, you know, it is Tibetan Buddhism is superior to everything and everything. And I try to explain things about Taoism. And I'm saying, you know, excuse me, this isn't new. This isn't news. You know, if it really was, it, it should be news. And it's not news. It's a variation on a theme. And after a while, most of the time, I, I just kind of let them go. And I don't know, once or twice, I had to hold my, my, my uh, temple. One time, he just like this. 
pam, bash me because he wanted to reinforce that point. And I, I'm glad I held my temper because it would have been very bad if I had actually hit him. And I didn't. Because I just kind of went and said, you know, and I saw all this stuff when I was growing up in the martial art world. If you think religions are bad, go to see martial arts. Fucking hell. Because most people who thought, oh, my style's the best, this style's the best, that style's the best, could 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 the chipmunk beat the monkey with herbies? <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. And most of the people who come up with these big stories and go on have never actually ever had a fight in their life. They've never they've never actually ripped someone to shreds, or and they've never been ripped to shreds. And so it's it's now becomes a mental projection. And the mind, as I said, is the mind is a wonderful slave and a lousy master. And how do I don't know it. I think that people get along spiritual trajectories and you could sometimes say it's, it's past lives. You can do that. That's a, that's a common oriental explanation. For example, my first teacher in Tibetan Buddhism was, was a man named Dujim Rinpoche. And I had a meeting with him in New York and he just said, do you want to come back? And I let him flesh his ass. So you, you were with me in these previous lives and you got pretty close. Do you want to come back? He verified I had been with him. I didn't say that. I have the faintest clue. And frankly speaking, how the hell would I know? You know, really, it wasn't like I had a, you know, a time machine, a way back machine where I could go back and see, oh, okay. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, he said that. Okay, cool. And I said, that's really what, and do you want to know? I said, I got to go to China and finish the stuff I got to do. My teacher, Leo, said, if you had not had a past life relationship, you never could have met me. Forget about me teaching you. Just talk about meeting me on a street somewhere. That wouldn't have happened. And if I look at, if I look back at a lot of things I've done, I could say the reincarnation story would make sense. I'm not saying I believe it because I have no way of absolutely knowing. And I make a big distinction between assuming things or you know, what do you call it? And facts, not in evidence. Well, you can infer it. You can infer it from this and this and this and this, A, B, C. Oh, you can infer that. But you see, the trouble is that I'm kind of Western. Inference is not evidence. And it doesn't matter how deep the inference goes. It, it's, you use that as, as, as a form of scientific or logical or whatever. And if you get close to it, but then when you get close to it, you still got to go farther to find it. But still... I did all the things I did in my life because they made sense to me. You know, I was a high stakes poker player when I was in high school. My friends would get busted for pot and I would go out and take some money. I'd go and make enough money to basically get the lawyer who would buy him out of it. I enjoyed playing poker. Why did you enjoy playing poker? How the hell do I know? Why do you like eating cherry gumdrops? Why do you like banana ice cream? You do, because you do, because you do, because you do. And that's about all you can say. Oh, yes, but you eat light banana ice cream because it's these chemicals which are interacting with those neurotransmitters, which may be. So I, I think that I always, at least in my, call it a spiritual meandering, I never tried to figure out why I did a lot of things. I had a very simple thing. Chinese in general, Taoists especially, are not big on why. They're big on how. How do you do it? 
And if you do the thing the way it's supposed to be done, if it's for real, these things are going to naturally happen. You're, and, and, and the whys are going to be self-evident. They're not going to be someone, someone's going to now give you a 50-page book describing why this, why, you're just going to see it with anybody saying a word. And so that's kind of a different philosophy than you know, the whole guru thing, because when you have all these things where, I mean, the Taoists, I mean, what they call immortals, what they call high-level Taoists, yeah, they're teachers, but they don't posit them like a Jesus Christ, because you see, for Jesus Christ, you got to have a God. And the Taoists just say, look, there is the universe. And we don't know why in hell's name it came into creation. We can pretty much tell you how it came into creation. But why is assuming a, what's intelligent design? It's assuming that's some super being. And the Taoists just say, well, look, if there's a super being, I'm not going to say there's not. Show up. I'd like to meet you. If I can meet you, then I can say there's a super being. If I can't meet you, then, you know, I mean, is that that different than little kids who have imaginary friends? Okay. Which is not, and a lot of kids who have imaginary friends, those friends are very real to them. So what your experience is and whatever the reality is are very often difficult to know. But the biggest thing I have seen with all the people who at least I've met, who have my deep respect as spiritual beings, there was something right. The core of them was just very stable, very solid, very real. And you could never quite put your hands on it. Although when I had many of those same things happen to me, I could recognize it in them. They could recognize it in me. But then if you ask the question, how the hell did you do it? You got me. I don't know. Some things are self-evident that they're not. And I think that when I look at today's world, if I look at America, I've been in America now for a long time. I mean, I've been in Europe a lot, but America is where I've been the longest. And it's because of the background of growing up in this culture. I actually can understand some of what's going on here. I think that just a lot of people I think a lot of Americans are mentally ill. Almost all the uh, major psychological associations and indices verify that. A big chunk of the American population is ill. Now, I have to say that I have sure as hell met a lot of mentally ill people in Europe too, but I don't know enough of them to be able to make that big a generalization. But, and it's not that they're, you know, running around with their thumbs up their nose and screaming cuckoo caca or something running through the streets. It's just that their minds are not stable. They're not smooth. They're constantly agitated. Stress is the big disease. And well, stress is just saying that something inside of you is not, is not at peace with itself in whatever way that happens. And there's a million ways it can happen. But is this, this, this I think, is also just maybe a symptom of the modern age we're moving into. I'm, I'm not... I've watched, and I, and I think about when I personally, and just okay. And I think about a lot of the people who quote unquote masters, and they're just okay. The one thing they all have in common is there's something in them 
that's either very still or moving very, very, very slowly. And no matter what happens, it doesn't really get disturbed. And I believe that keeps the person's mental equilibrium. And I think that the way modern society is going, you know, we're, we're, we're really messing around with this. You know, seriously, I mean, I mean I, I'm not a scientist, but it appears that global warming seems to be for real. Yet we know what we're doing and we know what's gonna make it worse. And we're now beginning to see what happens if it really goes worse, what it could be. And, and still, people aren't doing what they can do about global warming. They're doing a little bit. So what does it have to be that, you know, a guy's got a, guy's got a gun pointing at you and you got to wait till he pulls the trigger before you decide to get out of the way? You know, well, when you just get out of the way, I mean, that's all you got to do is take a step to the left or to the right. And we're having this. I mean, there was, and to a certain degree, some of this was impressed upon me when I was a teenager. Two things I used to do to further my intellectual development was just, I used to go up to the, the bullshit sessions in Columbia and NYU and the, the colleges in New York because I looked like I was about 20. I could get in, drink a beer, you know. And even if I didn't know anything about the subject, just listen for a few minutes and kind of get the principle. I, I could debate with these guys and, you know, talk about it, quote unquote, you know, saving, saving the world one pint of beer at a time. And, and I could see, you know, and I could get how that whole flow, but I also saw something else in that. This whole flow of thinking, you know, what's going on has a real tendency to lead to paralysis. And the, the problems we're having in the world today are being caused a lot by paralysis. We know doing this stuff would make global warming better. Paralyzed. You know, somebody wants to make more money. Somebody wants to make less money. Somebody wants to make more political capital. Someone wants to make less political capital. You get some people who really care and they make people do it. And then the other people try and figure out how they can make profit off of what those people are doing. Rather than just going, hey, excuse me, you want to you tell me something, Mr. Giant Corporations? If you're dead, what are you going to spend your money on? I mean, seriously, I mean, what are you, what are you, going, to, what are you going to do with it? And yet it isn't because there is this natural, I make a joke and I, and I hope I'm just not being pessimistic. But I go back to this, I said, when I was in high school, there were this group of buildings that were a bit downtown or Murray Hill or something like that, where they used to have these houses that were held by this group and that group. And they used to have people on the weekends, you could find out in the village voice where they were and what was being said, where they would have lecturers on the world's authority on X, Y, and Z, Nobel Prize and X, Y, and Z, you know, Rachel Carson, the silent spring, you know, about the environmental things. And you know something? I always remember being very, 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 very drawn to and going, holy shit. When I went to the ones that were really talking about what if population just keeps on going? And they would describe how the generation was going to occur. And they said, this degeneration is probably going to occur no matter what scientific advances we come up with. And I have watched since, oh, I don't know, since I've been 20, I watched everything they said this happened, then that happened, then that happened, then that happened. And they were pretty accurate. 
and I sure hope their final predictions don't come true. Uh, I mean, you know, but in one sense, what am I going to say? I've lived, I, I mean, I'm 73 years old. I mean, I've lived a few years, so at least, you know, at least I've seen a lot of what this world had. But I mean, it would really be a drag if it starts getting, you know, more and more miserable. You know, the, 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 the generation I was brought up in, the baby generation has been described by so many anthropologists, sociologists, one of the golden points of human history, really. And the thing is that we've passed the pipping point where it goes to be the best. It's now going to start sliding down toward the worst. And I have a limited amount that I can do. I mean, you know, I know the Taoist tradition. I know it really, really well. I'm pretty much considered by almost anyone who's ever studied me a really good teacher. I'm, I'm open to, hey, it's, it's mine. You want it, you just take it, please. You know, it's like, it's not like, it's not like it's my personal treasure. I didn't, I didn't make it up. You know, I mean, all I'm trying to do is pass it on. And yet I'm seeing in so many other things. Oh yes, but to be this way and this fights with that group and that group fights with this group and that group fights with that group. And all the stuff I see about religions fighting with each other. Oh man, you should have seen what it was, you know. I like the way it was in the martial arts because at least you get on the floor and one person will punch the other guy out and you'd get, you'd get a decision. <laughs> okay. Then the decision might not have meant anything and it might not have been true and it might have got reversed next week, but, but we don't have the, the, the conflicts we have going between the different spiritual religious groups in the West and we have them with the Muslims and you know the Jews have got it with the Palestinians. When's this stuff going to end? It doesn't have an endpoint. And so, you know, it'd be better. You know, I grew up in an era when I thought the Palestinians were wrong, you know, hijacking airplanes, doing this and that. And then I started learning a lot more about the history of Israel. Both the Palestinians and the Jews are locked into the thing that two wrongs don't make a right. And they just locked into it. They can't get out of it. It's like, you know, it's the animal just like chasing its own tail. And, you know, a friend of mine's actually, he's actually written books about it. And, you know, things which I had growing up in New York City, that was a place where the Jews were right, Palestinians were wrong. Eh, eh. Even, even the Jews inside Israel are starting to get that's not true. And yet you have this polarization based upon various forms of tribalism. I mean, I have a concern that the whole digital thing it's going to make the whole tribalism thing get ridiculously, ridiculously worse. I hope it doesn't. You know, I mean, I thought you, know, you were going to ask me questions about martial. I mean, I would, the questions I normally get asked to about martial arts, I don't get asked about Taoism that much. But if it is, I mean, I'm more than happy to explain its principles or whatever. And, you know, if you start talking about all the medical stuff and Qigong Tuina, that, that's, a, that's a hard one to talk about. Because so much of it is based upon really subtle sensory ability when you get your hands on somebody. You know, when, you, when your hands can go inside somebody's cells, you got a really different perspective on their body than it's just bones and guts and movable parts. You have a very, very different perspective on it. We did have that perspective on it. I mean, they work with their four to 5,000 energy channels of the body, all of which do something. They're not just capillaries. They do something. And the connection of how this goes with this, how this goes with that. And it's it's a form, it's a form of 
call it esoteric or only esoteric in the sense of hidden, very subtle healing that I think is going to disappear from the earth. I mean, I was originally asked to kind of get into it because I had the talent. I just had talent. I mean, I started doing shiatsu when I was, what, 14. And I only did it because my jiu-jitsu teacher said, you will not get a black belt unless you learn shiatsu. So he sends me this, and I just kind of kept on going. I never won. It wasn't my interest, but I was good at it. I mean, I could do it. So I did it. But, you know, all these different things, I think it's very difficult because, you know, people get into meditation. I wouldn't teach meditation. My teacher, Leo, that, he said that was my greatest talent. That's what he wanted me to do. And I would do it when I first came back to the West in 87 because I had been around various and sundry spiritual groups in the West. And a lot of them were filled with nutters. They, they, they were filled with people who, frankly speaking, needed to, needed to spend some time in a serious psychiatric institution. And their minds and every part of them were a conflict. And rather than just kind of going, okay, I'm fucked up. I would like not to be fucked up. And let's forget all these stories about I want to become enlightened and I want to become a Milarepa and I want to be able to walk on water. But I'm fucked up. I don't want to be fucked up. Now, anybody comes to me like that, I say, okay, so let's see what we can do to fuck you. That's a reasonable request. But then it all gets, you know, like, like, like you got the cake and then you got, you know, you got the, and then you used to start putting another layer and another layer of, of icing and icing and to find the cake is up, up to the ceiling. And you can't remember why you're doing it to begin with. And, and I think that, you know, as long as you have this human tendency, you're going to get the exploitative gurus. There's no way. I mean, I, I think that one of the things that is I, I thought was always impressed me about Taoism, at least, is that they always said that nothing you have is yours. You get to borrow it. It gets to flow through you. You can play around, but it's not yours. It didn't come from you. It's going to leave you when you go, and someone else is going to end up with it, but it's not yours. And so you don't really need to have this giant pride about what you have, what there is. Because it's in truth, if you really follow what emptiness is about, it doesn't exist. Except that's, that's at the heart of human beings. They want to hold something, grab it, grind. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Uh, I don't know. You know, I think it's I think it's I think it's nonsense. But it's part of the human curve learning curve. And like a lot of religions or spiritual paths, this is kind of how I look at it, how Taoists look at it. And Taoism, they say, don't want to be a god. Just be a human being. But a lot of people, they want to be a guy. What I want to pray to, I want to be able to walk on water. I want to be able to fly. I want to be able to go to the ground and uh, make a mountain rise up in the air. I want to be able to become a trillionaire. I want to be able to something. And that's not really what it's about because, you see, that's not what the universe is about. The universe keeps on going regardless of any input that's thrown into it. So what makes you think you're, you're, you know, you can do something the rest of the universe can? It's a bit of greed, hubris, whatever term you want to use, but 
a lot of people have at the bottom of them a deep insecurity about something. And as long as they have that insecurity, they're always going to fight, scratch to protect it, to either protect it or try and make like it's the best thing in the world. Okay, I'm insecure because of blah, blah, blah. And, but you see, actually, that is like the best thing the universe ever could give anybody. Maybe. But just be straight. I mean, if you can live with yourself and be okay with yourself and you can live with other people, if you want to, because not everybody does, as long as you can live with them, what's the difference? Doesn't mean you have to live with everybody. But, you know, if you got a few people you want to, you're okay with living with, okay. If you're okay living with, you know, giant, vast numbers. But at what point in all our communication with the web that's around us, if we're trying to hold on to things, how many things can we hold on to before we just can't do it anymore? And this is something that Taoists have always, have always, you know, really, really, really noticed. And that's why they have, they have such a big solitary tradition. I mean, you've got the Taoists to, they go and live in caves 30, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And the Buddhists and the Hindus were not the only ones who did this. Okay. I mean, Taoists did it too. And then you've got the Taoists who are like, you know, they're out in the marketplace, they're out in the world. They like, they like the bullshit that goes on in life. And no one who lives a life cannot at some point come up with, God, there's a lot of bullshit going on right here. It's kind of hard to miss it. But even with all that, they're fine with it. And there's some who just want to live a fairly quiet way in the middle. And those are natural personality or quote soul types. It's not, it's not that they did anything in particular to achieve it. It's just that that is what, that's what they're made of. And that was just said, well, find out what you're made of and live it. Because that's all you can do with it. You can't put it in a jar and, you know, save it for the winter. It doesn't work that way. So it's a very kind of thousands, a very naturalistic kind of religion. You know, and they have their principles. I mean, you know, the Laos's principle of non-competition and softness and all that. I mean, in martial arts, you can really see how it plays out for real. You know, it's not just that, but it's a lot harder to do it in life than it is to do it in the martial art, because it's a lot harder to do something that is across all contexts than something that is zeroed in on just one context. And that, 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 I think that would be true of anything. Anyway, anything else you want to ask me? I just, you know, I'm just blathering on. Well, thank you very much. It's fascinating, actually. Fascinating. I have more questions than we could possibly get through in this one session. We might have to do a sequel. I might have to petition you for a sequel. Um, where we It's okay. I mean, yeah. look, I mean, this is, this is where I sit in the world. Although I am authorized to be a Dzogchen teacher, I'd probably get more students simply because I could say it was Buddhism. Why? People have heard of it. I mean, I guarantee you, you will sell a lot more chocolate bars than you will Dusselow. Dusselow. Because no one knows what a Dusselow is, then you got to explain the whole thing. What's a Dusselow? 
And then, oh, a small percentage of people here, well, that sounds interesting. Where if you say chocolate, everyone knows what chocolate is, and it's very easy. I think I think Taoism is one of the unique traditions in the world. I think it's got a very unique way it approaches a lot of things. And being a lineage holder, I'm happy to pass it on because I think it can it can just help with the confusion, misery over-anxiousness of the modern age that we live in. And I do believe that if we don't work out, I believe the earth is at a tipping point where either we're going to figure things out or we're just going to destroy ourselves, which is not, from a Taoist point of view, it's not that big a deal. Look up in the night sky. See how many planets and stars there are up there? Don't worry. If you can't be here, you can be somewhere else. But, you know, this is a nice place, I would have to say. I mean, it's got some good stuff going for it. And I think that, I think it's very practical. I think it's very natural. None of it is really based upon you should or you must or you ought to be. As a matter of fact, those words in Taoism are almost like, don't do that. <laughs> You're just going to get in trouble. That's all that's going to happen. And uh, so I've been teaching, and I've, I've, been, I've been teaching martial arts and Taoism my entire life. I mean, I, my first school when I was 14, we had, we had 400 people in a karate school. That's a long time. That's a lot of people. I mean, I had 3 million air miles before I stopped flying around quite as much. That, that's going to a lot of people. I've contacted a lot of human beings. And I'd like to contact more. It's just that now I'm becoming less enamored with traveling. I just, I've just done too many miles. That's all there is to it. Um, I look at someone like the Dalai Lama or, you know, we get Sakya Trinzen. I'm jealous of the bastards that can sit still mostly in one place, don't have to travel very much. Hey, as far as I'm concerned, that's a damn good deal. Okay. Because you get sick of airplanes. I mean, especially since I've done most of it economy class, not, uh, you know, not first class or something like that. But, oh, why don't you go there? I teach things straight. If you teach things straight, you don't make as much money than if you do it crooked. That's all there is to it. And I do things straight. I've always been that way. So, uh, I don't know. Happy, happy to come. So if you have some questions, go ahead. Just ask if I can think about sure. it. Sure. Well, one, one question biographically, actually, to round out the biography, would be your studies of Dzogchen. You have, you're known, I think, for your association with teachers like, for instance, Nam Kanorbu or Lama Wangor who you studied with for years and was the man who recognized your eligibility to teach Tsokchen. I think there have been some others you mentioned, Dujon Rinpoche. Um, what about that side? What about that dimension? Well, Dujon didn't authorize me that. I had not been with him long enough to pull that one off. But, uh, so what's your question? I'm sorry. Well, how did you get involved with Nam Kanorbu and Lama Wangdor and this? How did the Tsokchen side of your uh, explorations unfold? Well, okay, Namkai Norbu. See, I don't consider that I really got what Dzogchen was about until I started doing what's called Togyao, or the Yoga of the Clear Light. Okay? Uh, and with Namkai Norbu, I did what's called Trecha, or just Clear Mind. Um, I had a friend of mine who's a Gnostic bishop. In Gnosticism, actually, his group was one of the only ones the See of Rome ever recognized. And he just said, you ought to go see this guy. He's like you. He tells it straight. He tells it like it is. So I said, okay. I mean, you know, 
there were no Taoist teachers in America. So, you know, at least no, nobody I would, I would spend time with. And so I went to one of his things and I said, this guy's mind is open. It's for real. And so I did things with him. But it's also, you know, there is a phrase in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And so if you like to do something, if you, if you like to drink cherry soda and uh, there's nobody who can do Taoist cherry soda, then, okay, go to a different branch and maybe you'll, you'll, you'll do cream soda instead. That's still soda, so you'll be all right. So, and I did a lot of things with Norbu over a lot of years uh, when I had the time because my teaching schedule was really heavy. And I was raising two kids. So this like, you know, I mean, when I, when I was writing, when I, when I wrote my first 10 books, I did that by, and I didn't sleep more than four hours any night. My nights three I literally wrote into my sleep time. That's how I got those books written. They didn't, they didn't you know, they didn't write this because I write my own books. It isn't like I just dictate it and someone takes it apart and does what they want, which is what happens with Norville. Okay, or almost all these guys. So uh, for me, it was particularly hard because I don't like writing, never did. Now I've gone from hating writing to benign neutrality, which as far as I'm concerned is, is a definite step up. You suffer less, okay? Uh, Lama Wangdor, my friend Seth, after I had done some stuff with Jinmei Punsak, uh, was kind of considered to be a big shot in Tibet. And then I got from him something that comes, the thing that comes down through Pacha Rinpoche and whatever, something, something that, 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 what's his face in, in Nepal who's died, uh, um, Chachal, that came from that same thing. And I, I did a thing. And so he, you know, he, he was like kind of going, oh, I said, oh, I want to learn to again. No, you have to do Nundro. So I did Nundro twice. I did the first time and Norbu said he had done it twice. So I said, well, what the hell, in for a penny and for a pound. So I did that. Um, but then Lama Wando started coming to California and uh, my friend said, and I went and saw him and our minds just, that was it. And so every time we would come to California, I would do stuff. Then I went to India to see him a couple of times. And then I asked him if he would teach me Tokyo. And he said, yes. And then I spent, I had two trips where I went there while we do was Tokyo. And at the very end of it, uh, he said something, well, yes, I'm in this light, you know, but you can't always be looking at the sun and the moon. But in your regular life, notice what his life is. And it didn't take very long before the reality of clear light hit. And so it isn't like, you know, it, it isn't like I have to practice to do clear. It's just always there. It never goes away. And the three statements of Garab Dorje, the third statement is that, you know, the first one is you kind of get what it is. The second one is keep on going. And the third one is just keep it where it self-perpetuates forever and ever. And that's kind of where I'm at. So people always ask, oh, when do you meditate? And I say, well, when don't I? I don't care. I mean, I mean, it's, it's just, it's life. That's all it is. And I think that that's a big problem that happens with many people. They study with each, oh, I'm, I'm learning how to meditate. I'm doing this meditation. I'm doing that. All right, let's just transfer this. Oh, I got, I got, I got forty bonds in this. I got thirty bonds in that. Oh, I got seventeen issues of stock over here. I got seven cars. I got three houses. I got a boat. I got four boats. Is there really much of a difference? You know, seriously. And it's just that when something becomes 
the phrase I always got that we always stood in Taoism is just listen, it's real when it's your part of your blood and your bones. And that's it. You don't think about your blood, you don't think about your bones. It isn't like every time you move your hand, even just a little, you go, oh, yes, my bone and articulated this way, that way, that way, that way. Oh, yeah, sure. If you focus on, you can know exactly how they all happen, but you don't walk around going, oh, my bone just shifted a millimeter to the left. It just shifted a millimeter to the right. You go crazy. You know, it's more about that if you're just aware of it, wherever your bone, whatever it's doing, you just kind of, you know. But you don't, but while you have to put attention on making it happen, you don't know it yet. You're, uh, you're acting as if. You're making believe. You're, you're wishing and hoping. But when it's just part of you, it just, it just happens. You're saying here that um, the world is at a tipping point and difficult times might be ahead for, for people. And it doesn't need to be at a tipping point for people to experience difficult times. Uh, you also made that point. Uh, that all around the world, people are having difficulties. Um, anyway, no matter what the era, it seems, people can encounter those, great or small. And you've also spoken to two uh, abilities, this capacity to release or dissolve, and also this capacity to maintain this stillness or stability inside. How would you advise, from the Taoist perspective, or indeed any perspective, one grasp those two essential points? You, in your life, you've you've studied all the mar all these martial arts. You've done the medical. You've done all these spiritual traditions. So that's a, that's that's a vast amount of uh, learning that most people are not going to be capable of doing. But is it possible to isolate these two fundamentals, dissolving and stability? Is that is that really the core of um, of of what ought to be learned uh, if facing difficult times? Well, first of all, I wouldn't go into anything ought to be learned. Um, look, let, 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 let's start with this. The basic Taoist dissolving thing goes ice to water. Okay, ice. Your tensions, your some scars, whatever inside you is fucked up, okay? Whatever, whatever you is incomplete, however way you want to put it, positive or negative. And then the water means you go to being relaxed. You just, your fist is, and it just re re releases. If it releases, it can start moving and it can start, when it's like this, it's stuck. But now it can move, it can go, go to whatever, whatever. I do martial arts, so I just kind of like to think that way. But ice to water, Water to emptiness. Now, if you go into emptiness, any way you can get an emptiness, I don't care what the tradition is, it's a good thing. Because what's going to happen is that when anybody goes to emptiness, everything being something ceases. It can look like something, but it isn't something. And you just release it. And then finally, the space. It's a big old universe out there. And it's filled with lots of space. The inside of you is filled with lots of space. And when that space is unencumbered, you're okay pretty much with it no matter what happens. Well, put it this way. You can ride out no matter what happens. 
and that's probably more accurate. But then again, you know, all these different traditions are, as I said, you start, you've got the surface of the mind, you got the depth of the mind. Different traditions emphasize what you need to do to open up this level of the mind. Okay? You can, you got all these traditions where they make mantras. Well, what do the mantras do? The mantras start making vib internal vibrations. But then when they go silent, the whole universe is filled with vibration because the nature of emptiness, equality of emptiness that's with it, it never leaves it as vibration. So you can go from vibration to emptiness. You go from emptiness to vibration. We have all these kind of liturgies in the Taoism. Like the, the, a big thing that's in all the ancient traditions is what they call mind-to-mind -mind transmit. Your mind goes directly into someone's core and starts shifting it. Well, the Taoists first do it with vibrations. They have these liturgies where they actually can break down how you do it until finally you don't need the sound anymore. You can just go directly to it because you, you hit what the underlying basis of the vibrations is. But I don't know. I mean, look, I studied all this jazz for a long time, which in one sense, uh, a bit like I was in martial arts and a bit like, frankly speaking, as I was as a kid studying text, I was always looking for what were the points of commonality between things and what were the points of real difference? The points of real difference wouldn't allow everything to gel. The points of commonality would. And so I always did a comparative analysis, okay? I wasn't just interested in learning to do one punch. I wanted to get the hundred different ways that a punch could go because that might be the angle that showed up, okay? Oh, you can always, oh yeah, boom. Yeah, but wait, but wait, but what if they the head moves to the step? Well, I just track it, okay? But that's, that's not how most people think. They just think of boom, 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 boom. Well, it's the same thing with thoughts, with energy, with vibrations. My own personal way was that I wanted to understand the totality of something. And to understand the totality of something, you have to understand the ways in which it works. Now, when I teach a lot of people, they don't need the totality. So I just look at them, what the hell do they need? And it's that part of the totality I teach them. I don't bother teaching the whole thing. Why? Because, you know, as you said, they're not going to put the work in the effort I did because they're not driven by the type of curiosity I had. And if someone does have that curiosity, I'm more than happy to. You know, I, I never say, this is how you do it. I said, well, you can do it this way, but then also remember that or remember that. And then when you remember those, you remember those too. Because they're part of the totality. Yes, I think that the first thing is, and my teacher, Leo, he put it very well. The first thing in Taoism you have to get is the stability of your mind. They call that stillness or jing. If you don't have that, you have no way of putting in context all this other stuff that's floating around here. So first you got to arrive at jing somehow. And they've got their methods of doing it. I'm sure the Buddhists do and the Hindus do. I know the Buddhists and Hindus do. But I'm quite sure for that matter that tribes in a Swaziland have something. Okay, although I don't know what it is. Then when you have that stability, then, then you can start looking from that stability. How do you begin to penetrate what is really inside you? Because without, without, without a stable platform, you know, what's the phrase? You got it today and you forgot it tomorrow. 
Easy come, easy go. So people go, oh, wow, I had this great experience. Whoopee. You want, you, want, you, want, you want to have experiences? Hell, go to Baskin and Robbins, 36 flavors of ice cream. Each one will give you a different experience. It's still all ice cream. Does it really much matter? And every, every teacher I ever had was always very big on don't take the experience seriously. They are just the way that your mind fluff is just cohesing at that moment. It doesn't say they mean anything. They may or may not, but that's something you got to find out. I don't know if that answers your question. That's the best I could do. Yeah, it does. Thank you. You mentioned transmission there, and you've said that your teacher in Beijing, um, well, I'm quoting you now. You said, my teacher in Beijing trained me to do that. I was trained mm -hmm. and taught how to do it. We were trained how to do it to an incredible level of precision. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could say a little, a little more about that. What is the me mechanism there? And what is the relationship between transmission and practice? Uh, is, uh, I think of Nityananda also, you mentioned Nityananda, famous for his Shaktipat transmission, which also Muktananda was famous for. One of his main methods of working with people was this tremendous field of Shakti he could uh, emit. Yeah, but, but, but Nityananda never said his method was Shaktipat. Mm. He never said that. Nityananda was what was called an avanut, which means he went, he practiced in the jungles, you know, the forests, and he got what it was. Nityananda often would say, I have no method. Muktananda got the method of Shaktipat from Vishnu Tirth. He didn't get it from, 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 from Nityananda. As I said, uh, Vishnu Tirth used to visit Nityananda have somebody where they could chat. I mean, he was originally in Bombay, Vishnu Tears. So Ganesh Puri wasn't all that far away. And you know, when you reach a, when you reach a fairly high spiritual level, frankly speaking, it's not like you got a whole lot of people you can hang with. It isn't. I mean, you just don't. It'd be nice if you did, but you don't. And especially in India. So, you know, I, I just wanted to clear that point up because that is a point that, that a lot of the people have a, have a misunderstanding on. Yeah. And if I had not been in that whole thing with the people that everybody personally knew people, I, I sure as hell could have never figured that one out. Hmm. Well, certainly in that, that's very good to clear that up. Thank you. Certainly Muktananda was famous for that, that Shakti part. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing he was doing, he was doing Shakti part, yeah. Right, right. So, you know, what, I'm curious about the, the Taoist transmission, that, that proximity um, emission of, of something and Shaktipat, are they the same? Is there a difference there? And also, what about practice? What about the individual students need to practice when in the field of that kind of a potency? If you, you can reach in and do things to a person. Wait, wait, wait. So are you talking about what they practice when it's happening to them or what they practice after it's happening to them? Uh, both. Yeah. So I'm thinking okay. about it from the master's side and from the student's side. Okay. Hmm. Let's just say I understand the issue of transmission a little bit. Right. Okay. I was, I was taught how to do it, but I was taught how to do it in two stages. The first stage is I was taught how to do it through Taoist liturgies and vibration. Okay. So now wait a second. You have a mind, right? 
Well, whatever the sum totality that we have, consciousness, mind, you know, aware, whatever damn word you want to use. I, I sometimes, I, I really watch people go nuts over trying to make each of these words have a very specific meaning because even in Sanskrit, the meanings are not that tight. Okay. People have what is called simpatico. You're the first person to actually ask this question in this way. And what happens with simpatico? Somehow, you and this person, you meld. And when that simpatico is really strong, you know what they're feeling and thinking. They know what you're feeling and thinking. Now, this is a natural event. But what the ancients did is they started saying, well, okay, how does this actually happen? And so they found out some things. There are vibratory frequencies that when this person and that person are on the same one, just like in all our modern scientific googly goops, information just transfers. It doesn't transfer because the person over here is, I'm going to push this information over here. It's just that when they hit that frequency, it just goes by itself. Now, the next stage of that is that how does a person have enough awareness of what is coming out of them and what's inside of them to actually control at what frequencies it goes out? How do they control when it hits the other person, where it goes inside them? And then how they get that frequency to do something to the frequencies that are inside of them. That's a method of transmission. Okay. And that, 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 um, that's, that's with high specificity. Otherwise, with a lot of it, a person just sends out a blast. And it's like, you know, a person causes a thunderstorm and all the rain comes down on you. That's transmitting, but it's not specific. And that, that's where you get you walk away from it. Oh, wow. They were amazing. Oh, wow. They were powerful. Oh, wow. I was in that field and I got this insight or that insight. But that's not the same thing as when it goes very specific. It's that you have the question. Someone proposes you to do something and how the hell do you do that? Because you don't have anything in your background that would tell you how to do that. And that person could talk for the next 2,000 years, write 20,000 volumes, have you read all of it, and still you wouldn't know how to do that. But with transmission, you directly get what is being proposed to do. Okay? Now, I use a crude example, which Taoists sometimes use. For them, it's not crude because they don't consider sex crude. They don't consider it good or bad. They just consider it a thing that's out there in the world. But okay, so you watch, you want to know about this thing called sex. And okay, so now, now what do you do? Well, you're a five-year-old kid, you get a computer and you get on the internet and you see a thousand videos on how to poke what inside poke and press what and do what and do what and do what. But still, when it comes time to having sex, you don't really still know how to do it. You just kind of fumble around. Or you can get something to wear you get a good courtesan who takes you through it and they actually show you what to do, not by talking to you, but by actually 
to the feelings that they are generating inside you, all of a sudden, it's obvious how to do it. Okay? So, you take food. You can see. But if you get food in your mouth and you actually can taste the food, it starts becoming very obvious how to move your mouth to suck the flavor out of that food. It doesn't have to be, you know, there's a million ways it can be done, but you'll figure out a couple that'll work for you. So you have that. That is where it's done through vibration. That is where they're trying, where it's doing, let's say, with some of these mantras. Okay, so someone goes here, you know, what is, what's, the, what's the classic Hindu one, Om Namah Shivaya? We're going, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. Charlie had a little horse. His horse was made of snow. It's the same thing. And things start vibrating and doing this inside you. That's because something of that went inside you and started activating what was inside you. And the next question is, do you have enough to make it activate what's inside you to specifically affect you or specifically transfer what from this thing you need inside you? And then when it goes farther, it's done silently. And silent transmissions are the most difficult, but yet they're exponentially more powerful. And that's why people just want to sit in front of a guru and they go, oh, and they go you know, I'm, I'm high as a kite, you know, oh, I'm in love with them or whatever it happens to be. You're not in love with them. It's that energy that's coming out and the way it's affecting the inside of your mind, your channels that you're getting the buzz off of. But that very often then just can become a buzz. And if you get a buzz, it's like snow landing on a, on a car in the winter. You know, first wind comes, it blows off. But then there also is how it's done so it penetrates. And so then the next question is, well, how deep inside your mind is it penetrating? And that's a whole art about how to penetrate the mind and how, what to do when you reach a certain level, how to get it to start activating what is dormant in there. Because there's no, there's no such thing in human consciousness of anything not being there. Everything's in your consciousness. That's a different matter if it's dormant or it's active. So, you know, I was taught how to do these things. And I was, when I was in the Taoist priesthood, I was taught how to do it with vibration. With Leo, I was taught how to do it with silently and with vibration. But to, to transmission, the one thing that's absolutely critical is that As, still, as long as you're buying into the fiction, you're your body. Can't do it. You somehow have to go beyond the body to be able to do it. That's a simple way I can put it, which, I mean, even if you just try and teach a person how to do that, well, you have to get something that's going to have that memory of what inside me has to fire to have that go there and that go there. And that requires a certain level of not only how much energy can you run through your body, but can you make your, not your energy, but can you make your mind jump to another person's mind? Your energy will activate what's inside of your body, but it's your mind that's going to be able to jump across distance. So I don't know if that answers the question. Isn't that a subject people usually talk about? Yes, it's very rarely spoken about in such direct terms. Yeah. You know, it's, it seems um, some people from the receptivity end have a set point, very open, 
but to everything, or quite closed, but to everything, or somewhere in between. Very few people, it seems, are able to open up or close themselves down, uh, if you want, at will, or depending on what, what's in front of them or around them. This seems to be discernment, I suppose I'm talking about, in terms of receptivity of these sorts of things. It seems to be this transmission, a neutral skill, one which can transmit good things or maybe can be used in a more mani manipulative context. Hard to say. Um, well, no, no, look, anything. Let's just be very straight about this. One of the reasons why mind-to-mind -mind transmission is not casually taught is because of its potential fear of abuse. Okay? And some people just inadvertently wander into how to do mind-to-mind -mind transmission, but then they start using it to control people and again do X, Y, and Z. And very often that stuff leads to really bad consequences. We had, for example, a guy in America, his name is Jim Jones, and he got people, and again, he's getting everyone all whipped up and they're all taking, you know, poison. Wait a second. He had taken away the people's freedom to decide what they were going to do with it. But if you just start throwing, you know, I mean, it's like you, you, don't, you don't give a little kid a loaded gun. Transmission is the same sort of thing. And usually before anybody in the Far East anyway is taught um, transmission generally, at least with responsible teachers, they're, they're, they're really vetted as to whether they're a straight shooter or not. And then you have another... And I don't know shit about looking at it. I really don't. I mean, I went up to his place in New York once and I just went, okay, that's nice. But, you know, I was with someone who, in my opinion, was just a lot stronger, you know, because he was Vishnu Tears direct student. But I would watch where people would get really high off the experiences. Like when I was taught, we were just taught to not take any experience seriously. Just don't. They're not, they're not real at the end of the day. Although at a sensory level, they're fucking mind-blowing. They're shocking. Because this is not the way a normal body acts. But it, guess what? It can. It's got nerves. It's got fluids. As long as you got those two things, you can make all these things happen. But the story goes about me. I don't know whether it's true or not. And he started losing it because, okay, here he comes from India where he's a, he's a sadhu and no one's supposed to be fucking anybody. And all of a sudden he comes and in his ashram, he's fucking, he's fucking all the girls and this and that. Well, you know, look, from a Taoist point of view, they'd say, so what? They don't care who shakes who. Therefore, there's no, there's no repression attached to shagging. But then you take someone, regardless of how much power they have, if they have these points of repression inside them, and something triggers them, you don't know what's going to come out of it. You really don't. I mean, there's just no way of telling. And, and that's only because repression breeds distortion. You know, you can say repression breeds violence, but not necessarily violence, but it does, it does cause distortion. Well, you know, if he, had, if he had just would have been fine for him to shag whoever he wanted to shag in Ganesh Puri, and he wouldn't have flipped so many people out if he was shagging a few people in America. Now, I don't know if he was or he wasn't. But I was in New York and, you know, people who were in that whole scene and this was like disturbing the living hell out of him. 
it was like the same thing uh, in New York. There was a, uh, was a yogi called Satchitananda. And in New York, he had a great name. They used to call him Snatch a Dollar because his yoga classes were a dollar. So he would snatch a dollar. He came to a yoga class. I always thought it was cute. You know, uh, I had a friend of mine, Cliff, one of his good friends was like one of the people in that hierarchy, right? So Satch was, was saying how they should be brahmacharyas, they should be celibates and everything and everything and everything and everything. And then they find out in his ashram, which I think was in Connecticut, but it was somewhere outside of New York. I think it was, think it was Connecticut. I'm just not sure. Again, it's a long time ago. And they found out that he was shagging his secretary. Everyone went, ah! And the next thing you know, I swear to God, the place for about two months was an ongoing orgy. And I was pissed off because I just arrived after it had been over for a month or two because I would have loved to have joined in. Okay, and that's, that's some pretty girls in that group. But the fact of the matter is that they just went, oh, oh, you're not supposed to have sex. He had sex. Ah! Now, look, this was the 60s and the early 70s. And for God's sake, it wasn't like, you know, the idea of people having sex was like, you know, a revelation. And especially since he got a lot of students who were previous hippies and whatnot. But you condition a person to a certain way. You condition him, you can't do this. And then you don't know what happens when all of a sudden that conditioning gets broken. And that's why a lot of the ideas people have about gurus or about teachers in America are really downright strange and the biggest reason is that they don't understand the cultures that these people come from like i remember when i was first in nepal right back in those days my friend cliff he went up there and i mean he was shagging tibetan girls all over the place story he told me which i never ended up really doing because i just was getting plenty of foreign girls there like it was like a never-ending torrent but he just says look all it has to be is a tibetan guy just has to vote vouch for the fact you're safe. You're not going to try and murder him. You're not going to try and rape her. You're not going to try and throw her off a cliff. You're not going to feed it to your dog. I mean, whatever it happens to be. And then, okay, sure. Because they did it. And especially if it was done by someone who they liked and respected, well, they wanted to know is this person was okay. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't looking for him to be my, my soulmate, my person I always, no. No, they just, they, they were fine with the idea of sex. And, you know, if it was okay, it was okay. And if it wasn't okay, it wasn't okay. If it wasn't, they tell you to go find the next person. But over here, we would believe, oh no, these Tibetan girls, they would never, never shag a foreigner. They would never shag. It would, I mean, they, it had to be, they had to be married and have 17 bowls of incense in front of them, why not? And it was horseshit. It didn't conform to what the actual cultural norms of the place were. Okay. I mean, my attitude was just, so what? In 1982, you had a, a car accident. We won't go into that now, but it was very severe indeed. And yeah. there's, there's something related to what we're talking about that makes me bring that up. After the accident, you, your spine was very severely damaged. It took you some years, actually, to recover from that, which you achieved through a combination of uh, Tai Chi styles and uh, other means, and eventually uh, recovered fully, remarkably, actually. But uh, something related to what we're saying here, beyond the physical, you said, I went through a couple of years of not just mental, not just emotional, but psychic turmoil. And I opened yeah. up the doors of karma full flush, no filters, took it full bore on. 
fighting a human being is one thing, but fighting that, oh boy, that's a quote. And you, you're making a distinction there between not just mental, not just emotional, psychic, and then also karma. And so yeah. you're, you've, all, you've talked about the traumas that you've under you, you've experienced, the shocks you've had. You talked about the yeah. volcano your mother left in you. You talked about being frozen at times. You've, you, you've referred to that. And you've talked about how one of the things you had to do with Liu Hongche, your teacher in Beijing, was to release those through these, these Taoist methods. What's the distinction between mental, emotional, and psychic and karmic in this way? And, and is it fundamentally the same process for each of these layers? Uh, are they different categories <laughs> of trauma? Am I asking a really difficult, am I asking a vast question, it seems? <laughs> You're asking a really vast question. Okay. Uh, okay. Very, okay. Well, so here, let me, let me just take this, right? Mental and emotional pain trauma can be understood uh, maybe not the subtleties of it, but at least the, the big gross ideas, right? You have your relationships and your experiences on this earth. Yes? On this earth, you accrue karma. On this earth, if your psychic body is fairly open, you can actually see where the experiences you're having on this earth are coming from. When you experience the karma, you get the full import of where they're coming from. The psychic field is, is somewhat in the middle. So, I would have no trouble with saying that in past lives, I have broken people's backs. I've snapped their necks. I mean, you know, I've gotten pretty close to it in this life. But tell me something. Uh, what do you think happened in about 25 stars from here? What do you think has happened to you in previous times? 25 stars from here. Now, that's a distance that your mind cannot fathom except for having a number and going 10 to the 12. So what are those things? And what impressions are there? And you have to realize that even though you did something 25 stars from here, there's a connection in both directions. Something 25 stars from here is a connection with you. And to release everything between these two to where they're clean, that's where you start talking about psychic pain. And psychic pain is way worse than physical pain. It's way worse than emotional pain. It's the best way I can put it. But most people don't even realize that they have that kind of pain inside them until something triggers it and they can't avoid it. Now, what happened with my back being broken? I mean, I said for years, and I said it was the best thing ever happened to me. No, not all the physical pain, but that the way in which it completely ripped open my psychic field. So it was a lot of pain involved. But then, and this is a, this is a very fundamental concept that's in Taoism, and I just found to be true from my own experience from a lot of ways. Pain itself is not a problem. 
pain itself is a sensation. Okay, it's a sensation of whatever kind, gross or subtle. And there was a movie I saw when I was a kid that I think in one sense partially summed it up. Did you ever see Lawrence of Arabia? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At one point, he does a candle and he puts his hand on it. Chris, doesn't that hurt? And he said, it's not minding that it hurts. And it's not not minding, it's accepting that it hurts. And so in that acceptance, when you go far enough, it just it dissipates of its own accord. And I had to go through that with a lot of things. I mean, I always liked sex, and I got to taste. And one of the things that was really miserable at that time period is that you're having a good shag. And I mean, like, this is like, this is a good shag. Because there are bad shags, and there are good shags. And in the middle of it, next thing you know, all this pain starts arising, and you're crying, and you're going through anguish. The more pleasure that's coming from the shag is equally balanced by the amount of anguish that's coming up on the other side. You're not creating this. You're just being a witness to it. It's not that much fun being a witness to it, but it was at the end of that that all of a sudden you let go of whatever that thing that was holding it together was. You never quite know exactly how you let it go, but you do let it go. So, you know, I mean, it's one man's story. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't have people get too excited about this. Uh, when I was growing up in New York City, there was a there was a TV show. It was with Jack Webb. It was called The Naked City, and the whole thing started. In New York City, there are eight million stories, and this is one of them. All right, you got your story. So the fuck what? That's all it is. I mean, it's just this series of events happen to happen to you. Of course, people, they want to make an identity, and that's who I am, blah, 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 blah. And you can, as long as you're willing to live with the shit that goes with it forever and ever. If you're not willing to, you just have to go, well, this is just, this happened. And ants walk across the floor. Little kids eat ice cream. Snowflakes drop in the Arctic. And is it really anything more than that? But to free your mind from not wanting to hold on to something because it happened to you, well, that you you're talking about is, is in Asia what they call the ego, not Freud's ego. They're talking about, you know, what is this thing that's there and from that derives, is directly connected to all your conscious responses to everything. Bruce Francis, thank you very much. Sure. Again, if you want to have me back, you just ask. We'll just uh, see what Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Let's do a sequel. Okay. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.